And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is what Killers.com. A podcast about the deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I will discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, and then I will lead you down the dark path of learning about a killer, who they were, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian will slow things down and give us a walk through the creepier side of life with a discussion of sometimes the paranormal, sometimes a cryptid, and sometimes something that just weirded him out. Just as part of our general announcements, this Friday our new Thicted the Asquatch and the Serial Killer Mugshot t-shirts go on sale for the month of April. Remember, if you're a Patreon subscriber of $5 or more, you get a different discount code on merch every month. And don't forget, Thicted's are limited edition that are only on sale for one month. And then just like their real-life cousins, they'll disappear. Uh, the link to our shop <laughs> is in the description of this podcast. And this week in True Crime, I would like to let you know, Brian, about the, the most recent thing that the feds are warning parents about their children. What's wrong with my children now? Well, this is actually a a sort of con aimed at teenage boys. So not not you're nowhere near there yet, but it was interesting, and they're calling it a sextortion scheme. Oh my god! And the long and short of it is that uh, generally a random number texts a boy. They kind of gauge to see if this boy is young or not. And they posit themselves as also being a young girl. They exchange photos. And then the facade drops. And they extort the younger boys for money. Oh my god. These are not actual teenage girls. They are adults. And this is an actual, like organized crime situation that the feds are trying to target right now. All the grown-ups have seen the one of that blonde girl who sends the text message who goes, hey, I had a great time last night. I just wanted to send you a message. Did you want to come over again? And then you're like, oh, oh sorry. Yes. He must have given you a wrong number. And then she tries to convince you to buy porn from her. Um, everybody I know has I, gotten I think it. I actually got... I think I got that like last week actually. Yeah. Like, it's like a it's habit. like a blonde Russian looking girl. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Um, Daryl got that. Uh my friend uh your her fiance got it. His name uh actually <laughs> her fiance was like, uh, no thanks. I'm really not into white women. <laughs> that's what he said. And I thought that was hilarious. But I was like, yo, uh, like, everybody I know is getting this text and people thought it was connected to sex trafficking, but apparently it's just, they're going to try and convince you to sign up for a website and see more pictures of her. I say that in quotation marks. But in this one, this is different, but this is specifically them targeting teenage boys. And this is actually an FBI warrant. This is coming down from the FBI. And the thing is, um, this isn't like a big con, right? Because mm -hmm. they're asking for $300. $400. Uh, or oh, can't you just... they'll expose you and post these young boys' nudes online. Well, can't you just sue? Well, I guess you can't sue them because you don't know who it is. And like, numbers well, can you be have run these... through fake programs. 
Exactly. Like you have these underage boys like pictures, like that's that's child porn right there. So Well, I don't like, think the kids thinking that though. The kids like, Oh my god, what if this person like knows what school I go to? They already know this mm-hmm. about me, you know. But the thing is people forget that phone numbers have names associated with them. And so right. if they go, All right, we see that this person whose name comes up in I gotta tell you, I, this is my personal rant for the day. I hate <laughs> sites that collect aggregate information that is public knowledge because someone else would have to spend a lot of time gathering this information. But thanks to these aggregate sites, now it'll tell you this is where this person's house is, this is how old they are, how many cell phone numbers they have in their name, uh, oh, other places they've lived. It's horrible. And I'm like, they're like, well, this information is public knowledge. Yeah, but if someone wants to find out that information about Britain Ransom, they have to go to like 15 different places to get it. Now, because mm-hmm. of your stupid site, everybody knows. So what the scammers will do in that situation is maybe they see that, you know, Tom Douglas, 57, has four cell phone numbers and assume that one of those numbers is probably Tom, probably his wife, and the other two are kids. So they're going to hit up all of those numbers and the grown-ups are gonna probably ignore it because we're used to scams we've been on the internet since it began and we don't even <laughs> respond to scam messages or emails now like i got one that was just like oh your package cannot be delivered we need you to log into usbs and i was like usbs doesn't text message people go away <laughs> But, like, I got some of those messages around the time that I was moving here. And so I was Mm -hmm. like, damn, these people are aware of the fact that my address changed. That I applied for an address change. It's absolutely ridiculous. But regardless. And so the teenagers, however, are going to potentially respond because some people actually love responding to strangers on their phone. Of course. Especially teenagers. Gen Gen Z. They're like, oh, let's fuck them up. Yeah. (laughs) And so then you talk to this person and, oh, what school do you go to? Well, I go to blah, 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 middle school. Me too. (laughs) Bam. Now, while you're Googling, you can figure out which classes, you know, which classrooms there are there and make it believable. Mm -hmm. You know, but regardless, uh, what the FBI is saying, talk to your kids about these schemes. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, in general... Uh, because there is a subset of under 18 year olds who do listen to this podcast, not that many, but this is me speaking to you from a place of I used to be young too. Stop taking pictures of yourself. It's illegal. It's illegal for you to send it to anybody. Literally, you can get arrested for sending photos of yourself, which count as child porn, to other people. Just don't do it. You will avoid this entire scam if you don't take pictures of your junk. This is true. It's very it's true. true. Also, you know, uh, are strange. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you understand that people can be scary. Remember you that. that by now. <laughs> it's a season two. Come on now. You should know that by now. <laughs> remember that. Remember that. All right. I'm done. What do you got for me? I, I just, I just want to say, like, I get these emails, like, the ones where they like, yo, if you don't send us such and such amount of money that we're going to leak your news, and I'm like, okay, go ahead. Like, I don't <laughs> you <fucking> care. care. <laughs> I'm a grown-ass man. I don't fucking care who sees my shit. 
like years ago, I used to be afraid because we were young, we were wilding, and I was like, what if somebody posts them? I'm getting popular on the internet, and I was like, you know what? This is a crime, and I will actively sue you for revenge. <laughs> so try me if you want mm. to. Okay. <sighs> so speaking of teenagers. Uh, yeah, this is this one's not good though. It's not. It's not. Um, it's bad. Warning. It's not a warning. It's not a warning to. Uh, actually, it's a warning. Hey, don't fuck with cats, okay? There's a whole movie and a man named Luca Magnata. How are we still not understanding that the internet will mobilize against you and ruin your life if you harm animals? So, so there's this cat in Philadelphia, right? Okay. His name, his name is, yeah, yeah name, name is Buddy the Cat. Okay. Apparently, Buddy you know, <laughs> Buddy's hanging out on his porch, like you know, like he he should be. Okay. Um, you got two teenagers walking down the street. Okay, not one is not a teenager; he's twelve years old, but you know, a preteen. Um, yeah, one's seventeen, the other one's twelve. They're walking down the street. They're walking the dogs. Um, you can see where this is going. Um, they see the cat, of course, and they're like, hey, you know what would be funny? If we let our dogs off the leash and chase after this damn cat. Please tell me the cat fucked up the dog. I wish. I wish. Um, so the dogs, they, they, they went after the cat and they, they caught the cat. Um. The cat's not dead though, so the cat's still alive. I was so really good. Oh, they—they're oh, <laughs> oh god. So, you know, they caught the cat. The cat's—it's in critical condition right now. Um, but they, this was caught on like surveillance camera. You know, these these two boys is walking down the street, and you know, one of them even goes to like. Says to the dog, "Is like good boy, go get that cat." And caught on somebody's ring door camera. Or yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess you know the person who lives in the house. They came out and they saw, you know, what was happening. And you know, he thankfully stopped in Italian like to save the cat. But like, don't, don't fuck with cats, please. Because it, like this is like for teenagers, this is teenagers. Like, what what were you even thinking? Like, that's not even like a cool thing to do. It's not even funny. It's 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 very disturbing, actually. The, the like when I read this and I saw this, it was just like, oh my god, people still like this. And like, yeah, yeah, they are. Um. But, yeah, like I said, uh, Buddy is in, is still listening to critical condition. This is uh, as of, I guess, two days ago. Um, he doesn't have any internal bleeding or broken bones, so there's that. But, you know, hopefully he makes a speedy recovery. And, you know, people at the, at the I guess, was it the PSCPA? PSPCA. Um, ASPCA. PSCPA. I guess it's the Pennsylvania. Listen, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's PSCPA. So they're saying, buddy, you know, he's 
he's you know he's a gem he's doing a good job there um he loves his chin scratches and you know he's just he's just you know he's just a nice cat like there's nothing like why why joe do this but the two guys the two yes go ahead sorry what's that buddy's a black cat stop no, it's it's like there's actual like major prejudice towards black cats that like dates back to like Still people being why? afraid of like witchcraft and stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah, actually... but now we're You can't still fuck with black cats nowadays. Come on. You, who doesn't fuck with black cats? I love black cats. They're best cats. Not the best cats. But, you know, they, all cats are the best cats. Yeah, Whatever. all cats are the cats. best cats. But, yeah, there is, there is like, a lot of, like, there are some of the hardest cats to get adopted out from uh, shelters and stuff, which is wild because I'm like, they're just, it's, it's just the color of their fur. It looks so fucking cool. Yeah. Like, they look so cool. Why would you not like a black cat? God. But, you know, I wasn't making a, 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 a joke about him <laughs> <I> being <laughs> black. <laughs> um, no. I, I, well, see, I haven't seen any pictures of him, so I didn't know. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of articles. I have a picture of a black cat with, like, a cast on his leg. Mm. But, yeah, there is a strange uh, societal bias where cats with black coats are viewed negatively, adopted less, and euthanized more. Oh my god. Poor Buddy and all of his friends. Yeah. Um, so it says that the SPCA Oh yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania updated. SPCA. Yeah, um, so the 17-year-old and 12-year-old have been they, they their dogs have been surrendered to the police. And taken into custody to the SPCA. Um, and it says that the two are facing felony animal fighting, felony aggravated animal cruelty, and a conspiracy charge. Yeah, they have a bunch of pictures, so, I guess, the as, uh, Pennsylvania SPCA have posted of Buddy and his little surgeries. And he's got little like, things on his legs, I guess, where he got bit at. Mm, I see him, yeah. He oh, looks less than excited guy. to have a collar right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Damn. Yeah, I guess they must have posted it on their Facebook page to the updates on his, uh, how he's doing. Mm-hmm. But wow, <sighs> yeah, a dog uh... fighting charge. That's, uh, no, Philly PD not holding back any punches. It'll probably get downgraded, but that was to show that they meant business. Right, yeah, that, that's understandable. But yeah, that's uh, that's what I got for today. Sad. Well, but true. This week's killer is primarily known because he appeared on a reality TV show in the midst. Of when he was murdering people, and it was a dating show. Are you talking about this guy? Oh my fucking god! I know who you're talking. <laughs> about. I, I actually know who you're talking about. Continue. He was actively torturing, <laughs> raping, and killing women across America. Well, not just women, also girls. Uh, from 1977 to 1979, and of course, I'm talking about the dating game killer, 
aka Rodney Alcala. Uh, one of the biggest mysteries around Alcala is the stockpile of over a thousand photos that were found in a locker in 1979 after his arrest. The FBI actually periodically releases the photos that no one has claimed. And in 2016, uh, one of them was identified and he received an additional life sentence because of it. But this week, we're going to learn more about the, the man who became a monster. Or maybe he always was. So, Rodney Alcala was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor. And he was born on August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas, to Raul Alcala Bucor and Ana Maria Gutierrez. The family of six moved down to Mexico in 1951. Uh, Rodney had two older sisters, and there was a fourth baby girl that was born in 1947. Uh, they didn't have a bad life in Texas or anything. The family lived in a model middle-class middle, middle class home. They went on trips to the zoo, went to the Alamo. Uh, Rodney went to the school in the U.S. before they moved. He was enrolled in San Antonio St. Joseph Catholic Elementary School and then Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, ultimately, the reason that they moved was Rodney's maternal grandmother learned that she was terminally ill and she wanted to spend her final days in her homeland of Mexico. And so the family moved with grandma down south. Within the next three years, two pretty terrible things happened to uh, Rodrigo, a.k.a. Rod, which eventually became Rodney, I guess, when they moved back oh, to the God. States. His uh, very much beloved grandmother died in 1953. And then after that, his dad just disappeared right before his 12th birthday in 1954. Looks like a family member who's lived with you your whole life is devastating. And then being abandoned by a parent is even worse. Yeah. Like, so who did they have left then? Well, all Rodney's mom could say to him was that uh, she and dad had reached a place where they didn't want to like live together anymore. Um, she couldn't really give him an explanation as to why Raul had decided that just because the two of them weren't together, he was going to ignore his four kids. Uh, now, the kids had loved Texas, and then they had gotten used to time in Mexico. But now, uh, without Raul or her mother, Anna Maria didn't want to be in Mexico anymore. And she was just like, listen, I can make triple what I'm making here in the States, so we're moving back. And they moved to Los Angeles. This was supposed to be a fresh start for the family. Uh, the kids were roll enrolled in St. Alphonsus in East L.A., uh, Rodney graduated from 8th grade in 1956. He was a very smart kid who maintained solid good grades despite a lot of upheaval in his childhood. His mom worked really hard to keep all of the kids in private school. He attended the Cantwell Sacred Heart of Mary School High School. But by the beginning of his senior year, he was tired of going to religious school and he begged his mom, let me make my own decision. And so <laughs> she relented and he spent his final six months at the Montebello High School. As far as the childhood for Rodney Alcala, he's known as a likable kid. He had lots of friends. He had girlfriends. He did cross country running. He played the piano. He was on the yearbook planning committee. He graduated at the top of his class in 1960. Um, so it was kind of surprising to his teachers and mom that instead of going directly to college, he wanted to join the Army. His older brother, Raul Jr., was at West Point. 
And so Rodney wanted to be like his brother. He enlisted on June 19th, 1961, and he went to basic training in Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. He became a paratrooper. And while he was still in Fort Jackson, Rodney received word that Raul Sr. died. Mm. Apparently, he had been living in California the entire time. Wow. Uh, the military gave him time to go to his father's funeral, which is where he met Raul's new wife and all of the new children. He had a whole separate family, and they lived only an hour or two away from each other. Um, actually, That's crazy. Well, actually, the only reason they even knew he was dead was because Raul's new wife contacted Anna Maria out of, like, respect. Mm-hmm. I, the new wife had more respect for his old family than he did. Well, <laughs> after the funeral, Raul Jr. went back to West Point and Ronnie went back to Fort Jackson. Uh, things seemed to be going all right. And then in 1963, uh which is like a couple months later, Rodney just shows up at his mom's house, no warning. And she's like, uh, are you supposed to be in the military? And he's like, um, AWOL. Okay. <laughs> and Anna Maria's like, isn't this what you wanted though? And, and she's just like, oh, you're doing now. Okay. You have to go back. And he's just like, mm-hmm. but I don't want to. And she's just like, listen, the military knows where I live because the last known address before you went into the military is here. She's like, they're good. The, the military police are going to show up at the house any day. So uh, he presented himself to the nearest recruiting agency, but the military didn't take him back right away. They interrogated him in California to try and figure out why this seemingly healthy 20-year-old who'd been doing very well in training up to this point just up and left, risking his place. They ended up sending him to a psych and and the military psychiatrist was like, he needs to be placed somewhere for his mental health. And so that perplexed them even more. So they contacted uh, his superiors in Fort Jackson and one of the sergeants was just like, listen, um, he's been real messed up ever since he came back from that funeral. Um, Apparently, he was having some sort of a nervous breakdown and he was having trouble doing like even the most basic of his tasks uh, for his job. Uh, Anna Maria was confused because the two wrote letters back and forth all the time. And whenever she asked him, how are you doing? How are things over on the East Coast? I'm fine. Everything's great. So everyone's completely blindsided. They sent him to an army hospital in San Francisco first, and then they sent him to a different hospital in El Toro, which is near the city of Irvine. It becomes apparent to everyone that he's going to be there for a while. And so Anna Maria starts visiting her son every day. Uh, she very much realized she was like, oh, he has some serious emotional problems that nobody noticed before. But she was pretty hopeful. She was like, listen, at least he's got a doctor. You know, knowing's half the battle, right? 
Well, <laughs> Rodney was diagnosed with what we would call today as antisocial personality disorder. And I feel like a lot of times when I say these diagnoses, I don't go into detail about it. The term antisocial personality disorder didn't exist uh, officially in the world of psychiatry until the DSM-3, was, which was released in 1980. Before that, we referred to it as either psychopathy or sociopathy, which are, of course, mm. are super loaded terms. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, psychopathy has been reported since the 19th century, and it's always been defined as a person who is insane, but they aren't experiencing things like hallucinations. This person also has a lack of restraint, and they lack remorse. And then sociopath, uh, a sociopath was introduced in DSM-1, and the, de- the definition kind of developed in the 1930s uh, as people with antisocial behaviors and sexual deviations from the norm. When people who were deemed sociopaths were interviewed, they lacked empathy, or seemed to have none at all, and they went what against what was deemed normal for the time. Now today, we don't even use these terms, and we understand them as different arms of the antisocial personality disorder, but even that is controversial, because there are a lot of academics saying that these are should be two separate illnesses. Because while we're calling it antisocial personality disorder, someone who is a psychopath and someone who is a sociopath are experiencing the same things. Sometimes there's an overlap, but not always. Regardless, uh, after a few months in the hospital, the military psychiatrist was just like, he can't work for the army anymore. And they rated his illness as chronic to severe. He was given a standard, yeah, a medical discharge, February of 1964, and released from the hospital to his mother. Now, in 1964, Anna Maria is living in Monterey Park, and she encouraged her son to find something that he might enjoy doing. Maybe, you know, if you find something you like, you can get a little happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ronnie enrolled in California State University with the goal of transferring to UCLA. He'd always been really smart, and the Army had told him that his IQ was over 140. Now, at the time in the 60s, they would have ranked this as a genius IQ. We don't really call people geniuses anymore, and I also have to say this. IQ isn't a statement about your intelligence. Standardized tests suck for people of color. But I digress. (laughs) Rodney wanted to be a photographer, and so he applied to be in the art program. Unsurprisingly, he did very well, and he transferred to UCLA within the year. He graduated with a Bachelor's of Fine Art in 1968, which would be the same year he committed his first major crime a few months after graduation. Um, this is this is where the story turns from funny haha to real terrible. Just a warning. Okay. On September 25th, 1968, witnesses saw Rodney lure an 88-year-old girl into his apartment in Hollywood. Her name was Tolly Shapiro. Tolly was on her way to school, and she was walking along Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Tolly and her family were staying at the Chateau Marmont Hotel in West Hollywood because they had had a house fire. Um, Tolly and her brothers and sisters weren't really impressed with the hotel, but most adults would know or U.S. adults would know that the Chateau Marmont is a hotel for celebrities. Anyone who is anyone had stayed there. 
But all Tali wanted to do was have a chance to walk to school by herself uh, because her and her family were kind of, even though it was like a nice hotel room, it was still a hotel room. So she didn't have any like time to herself. So she got up early that morning, got ready, and began walking to school. She was supposed to wait for the bus. But she had been having these uh, solo walks for a little, like a week or so, which is more than likely when Rodney began to pay attention to her schedule. As she's walking, he pulled up alongside her. He was in a beige Plymouth. He offered her a ride to school. She told him, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. And he's like, I know your parents. But she kind of ignored him. He kind of kept at her, though. He told her that uh, he had a really beautiful photo collection and he could show her these really cool posters. And that was the thing that apparently piqued her interest. Um, Mm -hmm. Once she got in the passenger seat, I don't, Tali doesn't remember feeling like it was off at that moment, but um, witness Donald Haynes happened to be at a stop sign and noticed Rodney driving slowly next to a child. And so he decided to follow Rodney's car once he saw the little girl. He saw Tali get in. When he saw the two of them go into Rodney's apartment, Donald walked over to a payphone and called 911. He gave the police the address and then waited in his car for the officers to arrive. So the police show up and they say hello to Donald. Uh, LAPD officer Chris Camacho is like, no, it's always better to be safe. You absolutely did the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, For Chris Camacho, this was his first day back at work after having been shot on the job. And he was just hoping for a nice, simple day at work. Nope. Sorry, buddy. It's never like that. Well, he banged on the door uh, and said, you know, I'm an officer. I'm responding to a call. Rodney came to the window, opened the blinds, butt naked, and was like, I just got out of the shower. The officer was like, get dressed, and he talked to you. And also, uh, Officer Camacho noticed he's not wet at all. (laughs) And then he heard what he thought was someone crying or moaning. Not funny anymore. He Got gave, uh, he pretty much was just like, open up. And mm-hmm. when it didn't happen, he broke the door down himself. Um, by that time, uh, police backup had arrived. The police all charged in after him. First thing they noticed was that the there were photos of young girls all over his apartment. They weren't naked, but it was still weird. And then there was a gigantic bloodstain leaning from the living room into the kitchen, which was obviously more pressing. Tali was laying naked in a pool of blood in the kitchen. He knocked her out with a blow to the back of her head and dragged her to the kitchen. There was a pool of blood near her head, another near her genitals, a dumbbell laying on her neck. Uh, Chris Camacho said the scene made him gag, but he rushed over to remove the weight and was surprised that she still had a pulse. They requested an ambulance, and uh, Camacho later told the press that he had seen nothing this horrible in his life outside of the time he was in Vietnam, and he had tried to save a soldier from drowning in a raging river. And so like, he mm. compared this experience to 
one of his worst moments in Vietnam. Tali was taken to the hospital and she was in rough shape. She was covered in bruises from head to toe. It took hours just to fix the wound in her head. She had dozens of stitches. The doctors weren't at all sure she would survive. Now, while Tali's life-saving surgery is going on, it's like only nine in the morning. The police are going through the apartment of uh, the rapist Rodney, who, like a coward, fled out the back door when Camacho kicked it in. They didn't know who he was at this point, so they took to the streets to ask his neighbors questions. Uh, Everybody said, he's such a nice guy. What are you talking about, huh? Um, They did find his ID from UCLA. And so they were like, so the guy who lives there, his name is Rodney. They talked to his teachers. Teachers were like, yeah, the pedophile? He'd never heard a fly. His neighbors like, he's a perfect tenant. He never makes any noise. Uh-huh. Uh, it took days, but Tali wakes up from her coma. <clears throat> she is able to move her arms and legs. She remembers her family. She remembers meeting Rodney, getting to his apartment, looking at a poster, and then everything on black. God. Chris Camacho definitely saved her life. She was pretty much more than likely choking to death. I mean, she was being strangled by the weights. Um, fortunately for Tali and unfortunately for police, she had no memories of the worst parts of her attack. That blow to her head knocked her completely out. Her family was devastated, and so they ended up deciding to leave America entirely and moving to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Um, Tali's dad was actually a working musician in Hollywood, and he just quit. The police didn't have Rodney, and they couldn't find him. Coincidentally, shortly after this, a man by the name of John Berger applies to NYU's undergraduate school of arts. Despite class is already being in session because it's the end of September. John shows up. He impresses the dean of students and the other professors. They're like, he seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah, because he already graduated from photography school. But um, they're like, he can catch up on his work. He gets accepted. And coincidentally, there was another famous future pedophile at the school at that time. Roman Polanski was a professor. Oh, imagine that. Yeah, famed director of Rosemary's Baby and guy who won't come back into the States because he's afraid of being prosecuted for sexual assault. Now, of course, John Berger is Rodney Alcala, and he would attend NYU from 1968 to 1971, working as a security guard at the college to pay for tuition. He volunteered to help with pretty much every student project or film. He hung out at the village. He was the hot happening guy at NYU, and he maintained an exceptional GPA. And he didn't rape anybody. Not that we know of. Now, Hmm. in between school sessions, he needed a job. And he ended up working at a summer camp uh, for the performing arts called George Mills. He did that in 1969, 1970, and 1971. Rodney had a solid life plan in New York as a 27-year-old. His plan was to be a famous photographer in New York after graduation. But uh, just like every serial killer we've discussed, Rodney got the itch again. Hmm. Now, it was really common for him to talk to anyone and everyone and try and convince them to, like, can I take your photo? 
um, just before he left for camp, summer of 71, he met a girl named Cornelia Crilly. Cornelia was from Woodside, Queens, and she came from a big family, two parents, two brothers, two sisters. That summer, she was moving out of her family's house to become a stewardess. She saw it as her ticket to see the world, and she'd worked for four years in office to save enough money for flight attendant school, and she even left the love of her life, Leon Bordstein, for her dream in 1969. So, by 71, like, she got back to New York in 1970. She moved into an apartment on 43rd Street with two other flight attendants. Her goal was to work the New York to L.A. flights, rekindle things with her love. They did. Mm -hmm. And then, sometimes when the girls would have to move apartments, Leanne would let them stay so they didn't have to spend money on hotels. Now, on June 12, 1971, they had just moved back into a new spot on East 83rd Street. It was the nicest place yet. Now, her two roommates were at work on flights, so it fell on Cornelia to handle getting everything moved into the new apartment. And so it took a little bit of time, but by June 24th, she was all finished. She had talked to her neighbors, everything. She called her mom on June 24th to let her know, I'm not unpacked yet, but we got all the stuff in there. Cornelia and her mom, Catherine, were super close, and they called each other five, six times a day whenever Cornelia was in town. Catherine told her, I have some stuff I'm going to do, but I'll call you back in a couple hours to see how I'm packing going. Noon turned to 5 p.m. She called Cornelia a couple times. Nothing happened. By 5 p.m., she was really worried, so she actually called Leon at his office, which she never did. He was like, I'll go check on her after work, and that's exactly what he did. He walked up to the second floor, knocked and knocked and knocked. He was like, maybe she went shopping, and then he was like, Maybe I should climb the fire escape and I'll try and get him that way. Uh, he couldn't quite make it up because, uh, unlike the movies, fire escapes aren't like super easily accessible. Some right, of them have they're, spots they're... that have to be pulled down during the emergency, so he couldn't get yeah. up there. <laughs> he was yeah, like, ah, yeah. I can't grab it. Um, so he called the police and he was just like, I need you to come check on my girlfriend. At June 24th, 8.45 p.m., the police show up. They check to make sure the buzzer and the intercom worked. Um, mm-hmm. They knocked on the door repeatedly, and then they went to the fire escape and just straight uh, broke the window to her apartment, where they found a half-nude Cornelia. Stocking had been tied around her neck. All the clothes at the bottom of her body gone. Her bra shoved into her mouth as a gag. There were bite marks on her breasts. There were bruises all along her face and body. The officers allowed Leon into the apartment because they needed him to identify her. And then they took him to the precinct for questioning because most of the time, these kinds of crimes aren't random. Right. Um, Leon worked with the police. He let them search his home. He went through multiple interrogations. Within 24 hours, there were 25 investigators assigned to her murder. Uh, They had saliva samples that they found on her body that they saved for later. Her job, Transworld Airlines, put up a $5,000 reward. And then the Professional Airlines Stewardess Association put up another $1,000. Most people were like, Cornelia is not that friendly to just invite anybody into the house. They wondered if maybe she had hired someone to help her move the stuff in, and that was the guy that killed her. Unfortunately, this is kind of where Cornelia's case ends. 
Her case wouldn't be solved until 2011. Damn. Damn. Now, while cops are just going all over Queens, Mm. John Berger is back at camp. I just hate that name so much. It's B-E-R-G-E-R. Berger. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's about to not use it anymore, but... um, Now, unbeknownst to him, he had been put on the FBI's most wanted list for his crimes against Tyler Shapiro. Mm. Uh, In August of 1971, two campers ended up going to the local post office to deliver their letters home because they were older campers and it really wasn't that far of a walk. Now, while they were walking to the post office, it got, it rained like super hard. So they ended up just standing inside the post office and waiting. And what do you do when you're stuck inside of a building and you can't go anywhere and you don't have a phone? You read stuff on the wall. <laughs> you absolutely do. And they focus on a poster of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. And there they saw their camp counselor, John, listed under the name Rodney Alcala, wanted for child molestation in California. Mm. So after the rain stopped, they went back to camp and they told their director. The director walked to the post office and was like, I need to look at this. And he called the FBI from the post office. The FBI told him, don't tell this guy anything. We'll be there tomorrow. Just keep an eye on him until we get there. The following morning, the FBI show up. They arrest Rodney. They take his fingerprints. Of course, it's a match. They have the guy. The head investigator from LA, from LA, Steve Hodel, actually arrives to do the extradition process to take him back to LA. When uh, Steve asks Rodney, why did you uh, rape Tali? He goes, I don't want to talk about Rod Alcala and what he did. Okay, so who you want to talk about then, buddy? Nothing. Uh, extradition mm. was swift. Uh, they did run into a snag, though, because Tali's family was in Mexico trying to live a new life and heal. So rather than bring Tali back up to relive the whole ordeal, the prosecutor decided to arrange a plea deal. The crime of kidnapping, rape, assault, and attempted murder were all downgraded to child molestation, and he was given an indeterminate sentence of 1 to 10 years on May 19, 1972. Now, I have to tell you, I have a love-hate relationship with indeterminate sentences because the idea behind them is that for people who can be rehabilitated, we won't lock you up forever and we'll release you early after psychological help and and study. The issue I have with this is that no one who has sexually assaulted a child should get this kind of sentence because we have learned through studying pedophiles that they don't stop. Once they have engaged Mm -hmm. in pedophilia and given that brain the hit of dopamine connected to the crime, they will continuously seek out stimulation that is them either looking at children and eventually, like Rodney, escalate from just pictures to actually assaulting a child. Now, remember, he was sentenced May 19, 1972. Mm. August 1974, they give him a clean bill of health. He's released. Well, in a year. Is required to register with the Monterey Park Police Department as a sex offender, given parole in Los Angeles County. Uh, now, of course, they have no idea 
that he committed a murder three months before they caught him for this. The, that murder would have been roughly 34 months beforehand, but he didn't even wait long before he attacked somebody else again. He got out in August and October 16th, 1974, he was arrested for the same crime, kidnapping a 13-year-old girl referenced in court documents as Julie J. He picked her up while she was walking to school, offered to take, his house, take her to his house to see posters. Julie realized something was wrong while they were in the car, and she tried to get out, but he like just held onto her, and then he ended up taking her to the bluffs at Huntington Beach. He forced her to smoke weed with him, and then he tried to, like, well, he didn't try to kiss her. He just straight kissed her, and she said it was big for us. Uh, a local park ranger saw the two of them sitting on the rocks and decided to come over and check on them. And he smelled the weed right away and was like, so, what's going on here? And Rodney's like, we were just taking a walk, and now we're just waiting. And Julie was like, he kidnapped me, and won't let me go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> First words out of homegirl's mouth. Um, Absolutely. The park ranger's like, I don't know what's happening here, but you're both coming back to the station with me. Rodney. I just told you what happened. <laughs> tells the police, we're friends. Uh, Julie maintained the same energy and was like, I have been kidnapped. A simple background check of both people in custody would show that Julie was the one telling the truth here, and Rodney was on parole for molesting children. And so on December 26, 1974, he was found guilty of violating his parole. His sole parole regulate, like rule was to stay away from children for the next seven years. That's all you had to you do. You can't do that. You, you, could, you couldn't do that, could you? No, of course not. And then on top of that, they charged him also with <laughs> furnishing marijuana to a minor. He was sent back to finish his sentence and released again after two and a half years. Now, I think that considering the time he got out of prison and he assaulted a kid within two months, we all kind of realize there's no way he just stopped doing this. But mm -hmm. from 1976 to 1977, we don't have any record of him doing anything. He reported to his parole officer every week like he was supposed to. And he kept his nose clean, as far as we know. And then in 1977, he started begging his parole officer to let him go to New York and see his family. Now I want to remind you that Rodney is a known flight risk and a repeat offender. So I don't, I would have been like, no, screw you, buddy. But uh, the parole officer agrees. And what family, you might ask? No family. He's not from New York. He was born in Texas. <laughs> so it's not surprising that as soon as he gets to New York City, he starts killing people again. Now, at the time, no one knew who he, what, what he was up to. But according to cold cast detectives in New York, they believe that just one week after he arrived in New York, he murdered Ellen Jean Hover. She was a 23-year-old heiress who had just graduated from Beaver College in Glenside, Pennsylvania. And she was in New York City alone as a grown-up for the summer of 1977. She loved the city life. She ran an apartment in Manhattan on 3rd Avenue in Midtown, close enough to her family if she needed to see them, but far enough away that she felt kind of independent. 
Now, on July 13, 1977, the city experienced a blackout. Um, it affected every neighborhood in New York except for South Queens and the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn because that neighborhood and school were part of the Long Island Lighting Company. The blackout lasted for almost two days, and during that time, Ellen was seen talking to a tall, thin man with dark hair tied in a ponytail outside of her apartment. Since the lights were off, everyone was outside, and one of Ellen's friends later asked who the guy was, and she was just like, oh, he's some photographer from NYU. He wants to take my picture. The blackout ended on July 15th. People went back to work, running errands, going about their normal life. Neighbors reported seeing the tall man again on the 15th. That night, Ellen missed a planned dinner with her friends, and her parents couldn't get in contact with her. Her parents contacted NYPD on the 16th, and when they opened up her apartment, there was a name in her diary and a date. John Berger, July 15th. Uh, the only thing was, there was no Ellen in her apartment. Hmm. Her parents put up a $100,000 reward, and then they hired a private investigator who talked to the neighbors and said that they saw a tall man, and they gave a description of his name and face, which appeared in the New York Times, but no one called the number with any information. Unfortunately, Ellen was one of 17,000 people who went missing in New York City in 1977. <sighs> the police were overtaxed. 1,600 stores had been looted during the blackout. There were 1,037 fires. 14 of them were multiple alarm fires. Roughly $300 million in damage was done to the city, not to mention the son of Sam was hunting in New York City in the summer of 1977. Mm, so they had their hands full. Mm -hmm. Rodney returned to Los Angeles in August. Uh, Ellen's bones wouldn't be found for a year. Uh, they were located at the old Rockefeller Estate in Westchester County, one of Rodney's favorite spots to take people to shoot pictures. But we weren't going to learn about that for another two years. Rodney comes back from New York. He uh, gets a job as a typesetter for the Los Angeles Times. And for folks who don't know, before we had anything digital, uh, all of the font and the print like for the headings in the newspaper had to be physically lined up with like stamps and sat in place in a machine and then they ran the paper through. It was very time consuming and they did this every <laughs> single day of the week, which good Lord seems like a lot of effort. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> did you look up typesetter? It, well, no. Cause have you, okay. So you've been the Lancaster, like the, the Lancaster newspaper printing place, whatever they like, they, I think they had tours there. We went there like once. I oh, think when we were in elementary school. Mm -hmm. yeah and like we went through the whole thing we saw it all and i was like god damn I, <laughs> now i'm just I've like never, now i'm like i've never been to the one here but i there is a, a guy on tiktok i follow who shows people how it was done and he's just such a mm -hmm. nice dude and like people love him and they like watch his videos and listen to him talk happily about the old way that they used to like do typesetting <laughs> and things and a love of font and i'm like it's cool. It is cool. It's, it's, it's amazing. How, you know, how that stuff used to work. Well, November 10, 1977, at about 7 a.m., the police received a call for an ambulance and a dead body. 
A woman was discovered on the side of the road on all fours, her neck bent so far forward it looked broken. It was almost like she was like forcibly curled into a bowl. Um, her underwear gone. The first officer she was seen could tell she had very obviously been sexually assaulted and beaten with a rock that was on the ground near her. Her pant oh legs God. were tied around her neck and covered in blood. The horror scene was photographed and she was taken to the coroner. She was Jane Doe 97 for LA. She suffered severe trauma to her face, neck, and head. There were broken skull fragments in her brain. Uh, they recovered DNA from her anal and vaginal cavities, but they didn't have the technology to test it. <laughs> they identified her as Jill Barcom. Barcom? And her family buried her on November 16th, 1977. Jill is an important part of this case, even though they didn't know a whole lot about her. Because in the beginning, Jill was incorrectly connected to the Hillside Stranglers. And she oh, wow. would be the one case that the Hillside Stranglers didn't admit to doing. Like, they were... I'll talk about it a little while later, but they were the they were like, we don't know that woman. We will tell you all ten people we killed. We don't know that girl. And that and she, <laughs> um, and ultimately that ended up being the thing that let the police know that there were some slightly distinctively different crimes that were the work of a different serial killer. Mm. Now, and one of the, like I said, uh, the, and one of those weird kind of kismet moments in life, they actually bring Rodney in for questioning, but about the Hillside Strangler case, because just before Jill was murdered, there was another murder that was from the Hillside Stranglers, and that woman's name, she was 15, Judith Miller, and she had been found on October 31st. So it was like they had connected the wrong kill to Rodney. And so they brought him in and talked to him about it. And since Rodney had been arrested twice for assaulting underage girls, the police spoke with pretty much every pedophile in LA County. And so oh my gosh. while he's being interrogated by the LAPD, the FBI contact LAPD and they're like, Hey, um, there's this uh, missing girl, Alan Hover. And she had the name John Berger in her, uh, diary and uh we know that john Berger is rodney alcala and you have rodney alcala and the police were like yeah we're talking to him right now <laughs> in the most bold i mean this is just to let you know oh he was such an <laughs> arrogant piece of shit um he admits that absolutely when he was in new york visiting his family he had seen alan on the day of her death, they had lunch and he dropped her off at her apartment. And then they were like, will you take a polygraph test to prove it? And he was like, no. And since, Why not? Ah, they couldn't force him to do it. <laughs> I know, still. And dude. since they couldn't link him to the Hillside Strangler case and the only evidence they had for Alan Hover was that she wrote his name in her diary, they had to let him go. Two days after this interview, the L.A. County Sheriff's Office gets a phone call about a woman named Georgia Wixton. Now, Georgia lived in Malibu, and she was supposed to pick up her co-worker, 
uh, but hadn't done it to carpool to work. She hadn't shown up for work herself, and she wasn't responding to phone calls. So three sheriffs, Jeffrey Cannon, Jack Denninger, and Mike Powers, go to George's apartment. Now, she lives on the first floor, and immediately they just do like a cursory walk around, and they see that there's a screen missing from one of her windows, and a box pushed up against it so someone can like climb in. They walk back to the front, and they open, they just try the handle, and it opens, which seems peculiar. Now, the apartment is boiling hot and completely dark. And this is December in L.A. So I've never seen, maybe there were some record heats in other times, but for the most part, I understand that while California is warm in the winter, it's not summertime. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered, even though I couldn't find a source, if maybe he had like cranked her heat up to try and change Right. The forensics make it seem like she had died on a different day or yeah. something. That's... But they decided not to touch any of the lights or anything like that. They pulled out their flashlights and just kind of cursory looked around and found poor Georgia in her bedroom. Uh, they walked back out, called homicide. Georgia had been beaten horribly. She was covered in bruises and blood. She was on her back, and her legs were bent into, like, a diamond shape, done post-staff. She was bleeding from pretty much every orifice. Uh, pantyhose were tied around her neck. Uh, there was blood everywhere. Bed sheets that stained through her mattress with pillows, walls. They even found blood on the soap in the bathroom and oh the toilet. Like, he had tried to, like, like, he had washed his hands and gone to the bathroom. <sighs> They also found the murder weapon. Um, they used a claw hammer to The autopsy on December 18th recovered DNA that was not hers from her mouth and genitals. The medical examiner said that she had been alive for most of this. However, for the first time, they got some of her attacker's blood as well. Georgia had fought back. And this was very important DNA that would eventually help solve this case. But for now, they had to just hold on to it. Now, what specifically made this hard was trying to figure out what serial killer was who. And the time between the case of Ellen Hover and Georgia Wixted, there were 13 women who were murdered in L.A. The police were very overwhelmed. Twelve of them were the Hillside Stranglers. And there were some distinctive differences between the Hillside Stranglers and Rodney. So, the first three victims of the Stranglers, who were later named as Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Buono, we will deal with them another deep dive day. Uh, they originally started by abducting sex workers and then upgraded to kidnapping women from middle class neighborhoods and dumping them. All in the same area, hence mm -hmm. Hillside. They also seemed to engage in a longer torture session of their victims. At this point, it seemed like Rodney's attacks weren't about prolonged torture, but he definitely was getting off on beating them near to death. And then once he had raped them and got his sadism fix, he strangled them just to get done with them. Now, the police got a brief gap in murder between December and January. And then on February 17th, 1978, they found Cindy Hudspeth. She had been strangled, raped. She had marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. And then she had been put in her trunk in her car, pushed off of a cliff, 
Cindy was 20 years old. And this was a major departure for both of the serial killers that they were tracking. But the Strangler Task Force added Cindy to their victimology list. Now, March 22nd, 1978, officers just, you know, decided to stop by Rodney's house. Knocked on his door. Interviewed him. He had an alibi for every day that a hillside victim had been kidnapped. By the end of the interrogation, they were sure that Rodney Alcala wasn't a hillside strangler. But he did have some weed on him, which was a violation of his parole. So they put him back in prison for <laughs> drug possession. <laughs> like, I feel like that was just spiteful. Hey, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, he got yeah, out in a couple nights, but... The next victim was 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb. Uh, Charlotte had gone out with her friends at, from Santa Monica College to a new club called Newbies on June 23rd, 1978. So a few months since the last murder, her car was left at a parking garage on 4th Street between June 24th and June 26th, and it was given multiple citations until it was impounded on June 29th. On Monday, June 26th, Charlotte's sister called to wish her a happy birthday, but Charlotte didn't pick up the phone. Her family filed a missing person report on the 28th. They checked her apartment. It was completely clean, as if she hadn't been there in a really long time. Eventually, she got connected to a Jane Doe that had been found on June 14th in a laundry room at a different apartment in El Segundo, 13 miles away from where Charlotte the man who found Charlotte was pretty upset. Uh, <laughs> she was found nude on her back. She was beat from head to toe. The man rushed upstairs, reported to the apartment manager who came downstairs with his wife, and they were like, yeah, she's dead. So they called the police. This time, the killer had used Charlotte's shoelaces to asphyxiate her. She had major trauma to the skull and neck, bite marks on her neck, strange abrasions on her left breast and shoulder, uh, meaning she may have been dragged at one point and still alive when she was brought to the laundry room. She also had been raped like the other victims. Uh, Charlotte was the first victim they collected semen from, which was peculiar. They were like, is he getting sloppy? They weren't sure, but the, what was most bizarre to the police was that she was dumped at a different apartment and they didn't know why she was there. Of course, they didn't know that she had met Rodney at Moody's, and we never really learned how he somehow lured her away from her friends, because <sighs> Rodney's a trip. He eventually writes a book, and I can't wait to tell you about it when, he write, when we get to 1984, but we're not soon, there yet. Soon, soon. <laughs> not yet. Soon, soon. Now, in the same month that Charlotte Lamb is murdered, they find the body of Ellen Hover. NYPD had spent the last 11 months interviewing everyone who knew a John Berger. His in New York classmates knew that he liked to shoot at the old Rockefeller Center. People also told the police that he apparently really liked watching the sunsets from the cliffs above the Hudson River north of New York City. So Detective Donald Tasek spent months combing through about 600 acres of woods. Even though this wasn't in New York City's jurisdiction, so he was definitely doing what he wasn't supposed to, he visited that area 24 times and eventually came across a pair of underwear and a bra. 
and he took that to the local police and was like, hey, I was in the woods, and I found a random bra and panties, and that seems odd. Also, we think this guy might have taken a girl from our city out to your city. And that was enough to get permission to do a proper official sweep of the area, which is where they found Ellen's bones. When that hit the newspaper, a woman called the NYPD and she said, I did a photo shoot exactly where you found that girl's body. And the photographer's name was Rodney. Oh my God. (laughs) Now, for some absurd reason, during this downtime after murdering Charlotte Lamb, Rodney applies to be on the dating game with Jim Lang. He was a good looking guy for the 70s. Tall, lean, cracked a lot of jokes, so they added him to the list of contestants, and his show was filmed September 13, 1978. Rodney was bachelor number one. A successful photographer had gotten his start using his father's equipment and was already fully developing brilliant photos at the age of 13. He also enjoyed skydiving. This was, of course, a complete fabrication, all a lie. I think the studio probably knew it was a lie, but they didn't care. It made for good television. Now, unlike today's media, there were not a lot of background checks done for television. In fact, I don't think the industry made criminal background checks standard until the 90s, when a man who was on Jenny Jones killed another man who confessed his love to him on air. The killer in that case was Jonathan Schmidt, and he had a history of violence and the whole being blindsided and potentially outed as gay on TV kind of took him over the edge. He ended up killing another man, and like when I applied to be on a reality TV show, they did not. They did a criminal background check, and they did a social media forensics check. I know what that is. <laughs> but... Well, it was to make sure that there were no uh, wildly racist, sexist, homophobic ramblings on any of my social media in the history of ever. And I felt really bad for that guy. Because I've had this Facebook account since 2006. (laughs) Uh, So he had a lot to sort through. um, And ultimately, the show got canceled because of Mm -hmm. COVID. So it didn't matter anyway. I was like, I hope he got paid well for having to sort through my ramblings. I post like 50 times a day on Facebook. Um, Half of it's just TikToks that I really liked. But regardless, uh, obviously, if we have what we had now, no one would have allowed Rodney Alcala on the dating game. If they had known that he was a two-time pedophile. Most everybody who interviewed him thought that he was brilliant. Uh, But the husband of the talent coordinator, that was Ellen Metzger, her husband's name was Mike, thought that Rodney was kind of weird. And that he felt like all of the responses were canned, like planned. The show, however, went well. Rodney won. He presented himself as fun-loving. He was wearing a brown leisure suit and gold chains. Um, every question that uh, his the dater Cheryl Bradshaw asked, he had a joke for. It was all very sexy, flirty. The audience loved it. Um, Cheryl Bradshaw got to meet Rodney on air during the reveal, and then backstage she talked to him for a bit. Now during the show, uh, they they would always ask like, "Oh, where would you take me for our first date?" And I guess his was, "We can go on like a, a couple's tennis date or whatever." But after talking to him in private, Cheryl kind of panicked and she called Ellen Metzger later on and was like, do, do I have to go out with him? And Helen, Ellen was like, no, absolutely not. You don't have to do what you want to. Your uh, contractual obligation ended yeah, when the show ended. Uh, 
years later, Cheryl. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so happy they said that to her, though. Like, you didn't have, you don't have to see him mm-hmm. if he thinks he's weird. Um, years later, though, Cheryl and several other contestants said that Ronnie gave off a weird vibe when he wasn't on camera. Apparently, uh, it was like he had a small window of when he, like, could be. Oh, God. Uh, just long enough to try and, like, coerce a child mm. to get in his car. So gross. Now, the Hillside Stranglers were found after two murders that happened in Washington State left behind a lot of DNA and clues which led to Kenneth Bianchi. He got into a fight with his kill partner, Buono, they were cousins, and went off on his own to hunt for victims and gotten himself caught and turned turned on Buono. They admitted to all of their crimes, except for Jill Barkley. And that was the moment when the police realized they may have caught two serial killers but there was at least one more. Uh, author J.R. Knowles used a saying that I'd never heard before, but I thought it was absolutely accurate for the situation. The best place to hide a tree is in a forest. And the best place to hide a serial killer in the 1970s was Los Angeles. Because as we learned last week, there were a lot of serial killers who moved to California. True. Now the LAPD didn't realize LAPD didn't realize it, but their next win was about to happen, and Ronnie was about to make a huge mistake. And that mistake was trying or picking up Monique White. So it's February thirteenth, nineteen seventy nine, and fifteen year old Monique Hoyt is hitchhiking. Uh, Ronnie sees her and pulls up alongside her. Same ruse he used on every other girl. Do you want to pose for a photography contest? You're beautiful enough to be a winner. And Monique needed a ride, and, well, money would be nice, so she said okay. He told her that he needed to stop by his mom's house first, and by the time they got there, the sun was setting, and he told her that this wasn't the best lighting. And I'd question Mr. Alcala's understanding of lighting, because some incredible pictures can be taken at sunsets. But that's just me having been someone yeah. who went to school for photography. But regardless, uh, I mean, you got like flashes right, and, and stuff, from, right? From what I understand, because there were a couple of witnesses who did see him with his camera, who were photographer themselves. He had a pretty good setup. Like he spent the majority of his money on buying good quality photography items. But. Uh, he told her that since he couldn't, she didn't have anywhere to go, she could stay the night because Monique was run away from home. He didn't actually try anything or behave any way other than a professional. And then the next morning, he drove Monique to a deserted area in the mountains outside of the city of Banning. It was about 80 miles east of downtown LA, where he had originally told her they were going. But Monique went along with it, and they walked into the woods for about 15 minutes. He took some photos of her in her clothes... And then asked her if she'd be willing to do a couple of nudes too. As soon as she went to pull her shirt over her head, he hit her in the face, knocking her down. Monique said that she blacked out shortly after. He hit her with a large tree branch. When she woke up, she realized he was still there and she tried to pretend to be asleep, hoping that he was like gone. Um, She tried to stay silent while he raped her, but he like bit her genitals and then began to sodomize her and that's when she started just screaming which made him angry and he shoved her t-shirt in her mouth and choked her until she passed out again she doesn't know how long she was out Mm. for that time 
But when she woke up, her hands and her feet were tied, and she kind of slowly opened her eyes, and Rodney was, like, on the ground beside her, sobbing. Seeing this moment of weakness, she decides to see if he could be reasoned with. She asked him if he was okay, if maybe they could spend more time together. She's like, make sure you don't tell anybody about what we just did. After a little bit of prodding in this way, he untied her and let her get dressed and they got back in the car. Uh, They started driving back to LA and they stopped at a gas station. He went and got a drink and got more gas and then he was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And she's like, I'll wait for you. But literally, as soon as he was out of sight, she got out of the car and started running, screaming for anyone in the motel next door to open the door for her. Um, Motel guests (laughs) opened the door, let her call the police from their room. The cops arrived within minutes, but Ronnie was already gone. Um, At the station, the police were in shock when she described the situation. It's very lucky to get a living victim from these kinds of people. Right. You know, it's weird that, well, it's not weird. I guess it's not weird, but, you know, it's, it says something about him that he had her in his, like, his apartment and, like, she spent the night. He didn't do I anything he to her. from Polly. He waited. And, and Julie, don't, don't do it at the house. And because mm. that's what he did with Ellen Hoyer. He took her out to that spot in Rochester and killed her and left her there. Sorry, not Rochester. It's in Westchester. It's the Rockefeller, former Rockefeller Center. But um, so I think that he was learning. But what I was most interested in is the fact that emotionally he is strangely upset about the murders. Well, okay, so we know there are different kinds of serial killers. Um, John Douglas, uh, I believe he came up with all of the names. But don't quote me on that. I knew that there were like three different uh, FBI analysts who ended up coming with all the names and doing all the interviews. Douglas was one of them. But you have your thrill seekers, your mission-oriented killers, your visionaries, and your power and control seekers, right? And we kind of... We all we know the hedonistic ones, the ones who are visionary mission hedonistic. That's our Belgunnesis. <laughs> They're doing it for some sort of thing that makes them happy. The visionaries believe that like God's telling them to kill, so that's not the situation. Mission killers are, for lack of a better uh, example, we'll say Ridgeway. He said he was cleaning the streets of prostitutes. I think that it was a little more than that, but based on his testimony, Mm -hmm. um, you have your hedonists who are doing it for their own pleasure and you have power and control. And so there's the question here, whether where he falls into this, I almost feel like the uh, Bianchi and Buono were more hedonistic. The, The thing for them was, the, the torture. And that's why with them, it was a bit more extended with the power and control. It's not necessarily always about the sexual assault, but about controlling the other person. And a lot of people attack children because of the 
control factor, but it's really interesting. I would I would like to see what other people right. say about this. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. One yeah, day, I would like to we'll get, get a, guest a, a more professional person because the problem is that some of them overlap in certain ways. That's just the. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because the fact that like she's the only living victim outside of uh, Tali, who was his first victim, she's still alive. Ugh. She testified at his trial in 2010, but I'll talk about that when it happens. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that's pretty bulky. Uh, <laughs> I just it's just an interesting thing the the crying factor because the other things we know about him is that he's super arrogant very narcissistic and we already know that he's got low morals and virtually no empathy so the fact that he is showing right. some level of guilt or sadness over raping and killing a child is peculiar um, but regardless she was able to tap into something human in Rodney Alcala and uh, by the time the police got there he was long gone at the police station they pulled out like they almost were like there's no way she's gonna have a good enough memory after what happened here he knocked her out twice so they pull out the book with all of the previous uh, criminals and they just pick tall white guys dark hair and she immediately points him out. And she's like, no, no, no. You don't have to turn the page anymore. That's him right there. <laughs> He's and right they were there. like, thank you. And then they let her go to the hospital. Um, he actually had bit her so hard in places that she needed stitches. And she had pretty terrible rope burns, too. Yeah. Oh, damn. Now, while Malik is at the hospital, they, of course, this is Rodney Alcala. He's been arrested multiple times. So they're like, let's go look up his most recent address. And there he is sitting on his mother's couch as if nothing happened. He, however, couldn't come up with an alibi for where he had just been on all of February 14th. They arrest him for rape. He goes willingly. He agrees to be interviewed on tape. And I think you know how this probably went. He tells them Monique agreed to be Mm. photographed sexually and for them to simulate sex acts as part of the session. He told them that she'd agreed to be tied up too, but that she had freaked out after a little bit of time and that he had choked her because and put her uh, shirt in her mouth because she was screaming. He said that he had been kind of overwhelmed by the situation and okay. he definitely didn't do the right thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. I mean, that's... He's like, oh no, I like, panicked. And uh, then like, I no. choked her? It's like those people that, like, they panic and then they chop up their family members. Too much thought goes into (laughs) cutting a person up for you to forget that. Uh, But regardless, as the interview goes on, he he admits that after she was passed out, he was like, well, she was just laying there. So I did. I I, I raped her. And they were like, what is going on here? They arrested him. (laughs) They charge him. The prosecutors request a $50,000 bail. But the judge only gives 10000 His mom immediately pays it because she's like, this has to be a case of mistaken identity. This was It was such a long time ago. He's not doing this anymore. That The, the Tully Shapiro thing was 1968. It's, it's been a decade. He's No, he's not doing that anymore. Uh, he only spent a few weeks in trial. Mm. At, I'm sorry, a few weeks in prison. And his trial was set for September 
So now it's April 1979. Ronnie's like, I don't want to be a typist, a typesetter anymore. So he puts in his two weeks notice for uh, his, and he says to his boss, he's going to run his own photography business. Really what it seemed like was that he was uh, putting his ducks in a row just in case he went to jail for rape again. June 13th, uh, one month after his last day at the LA Times, Jill Parentale went missing. Now, Jill came from a family of five, and she was a baby. As the youngest, her older brother and sister called her often to see how she was doing. She'd moved into her own apartment in Burbank, and she was feeling pretty grown up at the age of 21. And, like, it's so fun when, like, I read, I, it's it's not fun because I know it's going to happen to this person, but just for a brief moment, like, I remember that gleeful happiness of being on your own for the first time and being so excited, and you think you're such a grown up. <laughs> And that's, like, exactly where all of these young women were, like, right on the cusp of, like, becoming a a full-fledged grown-up when he just snuffed it out. Uh, But on the day that Jill went missing, her older sister, Dee Dee, called, and Jill told Dee Dee that she was going to go see this guy who she liked, and they were going to a Dodgers game. Um, And... His name was Dan Brady, and they had gone to school together, so this was feeling very, like, kismet for the girls. And so Didi was like, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Give me all the details. Also involved in the Call Me Tomorrow group was Jill's best friend, Kathy Bowman. And after either of them went on a date, Mm -hmm. they always called the other person the following day. But Jill didn't call, and she didn't show up at work. And her boss was actually worried enough to call both Didi and uh, Jill's brother, Jerry. And the two of them called and it didn't answer. The family called the coworker who was supposed to come like get picked up, Janet Jordan. And so uh, while they also called the police, Janet was just like, I'm going to just stop by and see if she's there. Because at this point, all the family had just been calling around, calling around, calling around. When the police arrived... Janet was hysterical to the point where they couldn't understand mm-hmm. what she was saying. So they, they send her to EMS to try and get her to calm down. Cause she's having a friggin' panic attack in front of the building and just pointing at the door. The police do a, a preliminary search around the apartment. They see that one of the windows that had multiple glass panes in it, uh, the glass and the screen were cut just enough for a person to climb in. A light bulb that was in the stairwell near her window was also unscrewed so that it stayed dark. On Jill's mm. kitchen table was her purse and a Dodgers basketball, a basketball, baseball program. <laughs> That's me. I wrote it the <laughs> right way. And a receipt showing that she'd been to the 7.30 p.m. game. It had been, you know, ripped to show that it was used. Nothing was out of place in the apartment until they got to Jill's bedroom. And that's why they saw why Janet was freaking out. Um, Jill was laying face up on the floor in her bedroom, naked, spread eagle, facing the door. She'd been propped up with pillows so that as soon as you walk through her bedroom door, you were presented with the image. Um, It was blood everywhere. Every wall, the bed, everything. Um, Major damage done to her nose, cheeks, head, and teeth. The killer had... uh, ripped a lamp out of the wall and tied the cord around her neck while it was still attached to the lamp. It was a horrific, horrific scene. And 
Joe would not receive any sort of justice until 2018. One week later, he struck again. This time, 12-year-old Robin Samson. Uh, Robin and her friend Bridget Wolvert had just finished seventh grade at Dwyer Middle School, and they lived near Huntington Beach. And Robin lived with her mom, two older brothers, and an older sister. And she was enjoying the like teensiest little bit of freedom that comes with hitting your tween years. You know, you can walk down the street, you can go like a couple blocks away from home, not too far. Uh, Robin and Bridget had planned out like an uh, awesome day. First, they were going to spend the morning at Bridget's apartment building. On the, at the pool, then they would eat lunch, they were going to go to the beach, and then that afternoon, Robin had her first day working at this ballet studio where she'd been a student. Her ballet teacher was allowing her to, like, answer the phone and was going to give her a little money, so she was really excited. Um, it was it was a perfect beginning of summer day. Completely ruined by Ronnie Alcala. A lot's going to happen here, and you're not going to like any of it, and there's going to be some stuff that I'm sure you're going to be real upset about that happens. Um, but we'll start with the better part. Okay. Robin gets Love to Bridget's it. house. It's 11 a.m. on June 20th. The two laid on the deck. They talked, made lunch, ate it, headed to the beach a little after 1 p.m. They picked a spot near the 14th, uh, end of 14th Street uh, on like the rocks to sit down and just kind of look at the beach. And that was when Rodney spotted the young girl. Mm. He walked up with a camera around his neck and asked if he could take their picture. And um, they were okay with it. Bridget remembers that he wasn't dressed for the beach. He seemed like he didn't belong there. He snapped a few pictures, then he like moved them around to pose them. And that's when one of uh, Bridget's neighbors, who was also at the beach, her name is Jackie Young, saw what was going on and decided to come over. Mm -hmm. So she crossed the sand, climbed up to the spot, and she was just like, what's going on here? And she said that Rami immediately stopped, stood up, walked away from them silently. Damn. Can you right? be more sp- Jackie suspicious? Jackie said that he was really odd, and she as soon as she as soon as he behaved that way, she was like, I was right to intervene. Um, the girls were like, he only wanted to take mm-hmm. our picture, and Jackie was like, that's really not a good idea to let some grown-ass 30-year-old man take photos of you. And then Jackie walked the two of them back to Bridget's apartment. It's at that moment that Robin realized it was 310, and she needed to get to work. So she asked if she could borrow Bridget's bike so she could go home and change and then get to her job. But she never got there. At 5 p.m., when Robin still hadn't arrived at work, her ballet teacher called home and Robin's Aunt Marion was there. Uh, Aunt Marion called Bridget. Of course, Bridget said, Robin should have been back at your house two hours ago to change clothes. Marion actually called all of Robin's friends from school and also... uh, her brothers, Robert and Tim, and her sister, Taran. The brothers started driving up and down the road between the beach and the house. Um, then they called the police. And one of quite possibly what I consider like the most tragic detail of this moment. While Robin's family is frantically searching for her, she was seen alive um, by a U.S. Forestry Service firefighter, Dana Crocker who was about to start a five-day shift uh, spraying, like, the, the wilderness with, like, fire retardant stuff. And okay. Dana was all the way uh, heading towards the Santa Anita Canyon, and she saw a 1976 Datsun station wagon parked kind of weirdly at the, like, in the, on the edge of the road. 
She saw a tall, dark-haired man staring a blonde girl towards a dry stream. Dana remembers as she drove by, the guy stared her in the face. Then she felt unsettled. Dana is more than mm. likely the last person to see Robin arrive outside of the car. Back in Huntington Beach, the Samso family is a total wreck. The police initially are like, maybe she just lost track of time. Or she went to a friend's house. And the family's like, we called everybody she knows. And they're like, how about you just give her a couple <laughs> more hours to get home? By 9.45 that evening, Officer Gary Christensen took the missing persons report. At 11.05 p.m., Robin's face and name were broadcast to the entire country, saying that she was missing under suspicious circumstances. At 1 a.m., they called in as many detectives as they could from Arch County, Huntington Beach, and all of the lifeguards along the coast were alerted. They brought in Bridget to give a description of the man who talked to them on the beach. The city began mobilizing. Mm -hmm. Rodney, still up near the Santa Anita Canyon Road, stops by a like a I would kind of like a pit stop you know one of those places that has like food a convenience store and a mechanic location yeah, okay. like a truck stop, like a truck stop. he says that he got gasoline on the carpet in his car and he needs it changed because of the smell yeah there definitely was probably blood on that carpet <laughs> Now, yeah. Dana Krapa drove to the barracks up at Chantry Flats. She sees the same Dotson again, but this time it was at Rendezvous Turnout. Dana thought that the man looked like he had dirt on his shirt. She didn't stop. Um, she ended up coming back that night. Because, uh, so, actually, pause. Fast forward. So Dana goes back to the spot because this the first thing we have was the 20th. Dana goes back to the spot where she saw him on June 25th because she had been having like constant thoughts about it. Just dreams like something was wrong. Let me just go to that spot where the car was parked up at Rendezvous Turnout. What she sees are remains. But she's dark. And so she only has a little flashlight and she's just like, no. Definitely not. I did not see a small skeleton, like a small skeletal body there. I'm leaving. She goes back to the barracks. June 26th, Rodney cuts his hair short after a composite sketch of him is put in the Daily Pilot. Now, the police are dealing with calls from all over Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Westminster, about a man who looks like Rodney Alcala who had been stopping people to take their picture. The most important tip comes from Officer Dennis McNaught, a parole officer who said that the man they were looking for seemed quite like a former parolee of his. And McNaught informed the police, yeah, mm. he's out on bail for rape in L.A. Then wow, the police get a call okay. from Donald Haynes, the same man who called the police and saved Tali Shapiro's life. Donald was sure that the man whose face is within the newspaper is the same man he saw in 1968. Haynes is like, no, listen, mm -hmm. I know it was almost 11 years ago. It's the same guy. Just, I want to let you know that I know that's the guy. So the police compared mugshots, not just from LA, but also from New York. And so there, now it's confirmed 
Rodney Alcala is a suspected, he's a suspect in the missing persons case for Robin Samso. He's a pedophile and sexual deviant with sadistic tendencies and serious sexual aggression in his previous crimes. June 28th, they start staking out Rodney's house in Monterey Park. He manages to lose them as he's driving around. Now, June 29th, it's been four days since Dana went back out to that site and saw what she thought could have been remains, but she talked herself out of it. So June 29th, so, okay, so June 29th, right. she's working in a ravine near Marker 11. A co-worker named William Pope came across what he thought was the rib cage of an animal, and he tossed, like, a long bone to Dana. Usually that kind of thing was funny to them when they came across, like, an old deer carcass or something. They just kind of chopped it to the side because they had to spray for stuff. But Dana freaks out because she's pretty sure he just threw an arm bone at her. She goes back out to that site again oh that night to double check. And she's like, I was right. These are not animal bones. And again, she says absolutely nothing. What? Wait, so they're, wait, wait. Still, so they're still there. there? The remains. Oh, my God. It's been over a week now. Now it's. Well, so Nobody now, July 2nd, Dana's co-worker, William, is sitting there going, that was kind of weird. Dana getting freaked out like that. So You're he goes sick. back out to the spot at marker 11, and he's just like, oh. That's why she got freaked out. She knew this was there. He calls the police. Now do the... Yo, Why didn't she listen, say I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I hope she's doing well and that she is healed from the situation, but she is quite possibly one of the most infuriating people that we deal with. She is one of the most infuriating suspects. Um, if doubting yourself was a human being, it is this woman. <laughs> Like, no, like, no, that's not no way. That's a, I, mean, I like, did see it, a tall man pushing a blonde girl look. down the road, but no. <laughs> and then, like, he moved the body. <laughs> he leaves he it in and he moves it. He has enough time to do all that. <sighs> Regardless, uh, because of the holiday okay. weekend, Robin's autopsy gets pushed to July 6th. Back in Huntington Beach, Rodney's mother is just like, uh, please start doing an undercover sting. They show up and they're like, listen, somebody from the LA Times told me that a really good photographer lived here and I need a photographer for my wedding. And Rodney's mom is like, yeah, he's not really working right now, but I'll let him know when he comes back. I don't know when he's coming back. Rodney's on the run. Mm. Now, back in Sierra Madre, they can't determine the cause of death because of advanced decay, because it's been two weeks. But by the shape and age yeah. of the pelvis, um, for folks who don't know, it's very easy to tell a, a prepubescent skeleton from an adult skeleton, specifically with girls, because uh, your pelvis tilts and widens as we get older. So they were able to tell that this was definitely a prepubescent girl. And... The only prepubescent girl that was currently missing and it was being broadcast all over everywhere was Robin Samso. The police went back out into the woods and they ended up finding her official death site, which gave them like items of clothing and other pieces of evidence. Now, you would think that actively being on the run from the police 
Rodney would like stay low, but no. Instead, he takes his girlfriend Elizabeth Kelleher out on a date on July eighth. They spend the whole day out, and he tells her, "I'm moving to Dallas to pursue my career in photography. And if things go well, I will send for you." She's like, "Dude, we've only been dating for oh, four sorry. months. What are you talking about?" <laughs> July 11th, the police confirmed that the clothing items they found at the death site and the dump site both belong to Robin. Uh, on that same day, Rodney rents a storage facility and he sneaks back home and pulls all of his photography equipment out of the house and puts it into the storage unit where he double locks it and begins looking for a place to stay. He ends up in Seattle, Washington in a motel room. As if Seattle needed any more trouble at the time. Now, on July 12th, Rodney drives to L.A. to tell his girlfriend he went to Texas, he loved it, he's going to be heading there on July 24th. He tells a different friend instead that he's going to be moving to Mexico. He told no one that he had been staying in Seattle. July 24th, the police make their move. They had gotten a warrant for his mom's house to search absolutely everything that Rodney owned, film canisters, negatives, photo albums, looking for any evidence that he had been with Robin Samso on the day where she died. The warrant also allowed them to look for the bike she was riding that day, and they were allowed to take samples of pretty much anything they wanted to in order to see if her hair or blood um, was on anything, as well as looking, testing his like shoes and things to see if there was plant life that could mm -hmm. be linked to Chantry Flats. Now, when they busted okay. in, Roddy's asleep naked. The police arrive, they let him get dressed, and they cuff him. Uh, there wasn't a lot of damning evidence at his mother's house, but they booked him anyway, and this time his bail is set for $250,000. Now, Rodney thought that he was slick, but he didn't know that they had previously tapped his phone line, and the police heard him telling his sister that he had a storage unit. So they bring his sister in for questioning. And they're like, listen, we're just trying to confirm some dates. I'm gonna be real honest, they definitely took the sister. It was a, it was a trick. Um, they were trying to, I think they're like, Hey, can you confirm some dates? And really what she confirmed was that he had a whole lot of free time and ample time to be out killing people. But she did say that, uh, he was at Huntington beach on June 19th for a job photographing a woman named Tony Esparza and Joanne Merchland. He also said that on the 20th, he babysat her kids, dropped them off in her house between 1 and 1.30, which means anything after 1.30, he could not answer for. Now, July 26th, the police find the storage mm -hmm. unit secured with two locks. They already had the keys from his house. So at 5.40, they begin going through the locker. It takes them three hours. They find over 1,700 photographs, 900 of them extremely explicit. An envelope of photos marked Tolly VA rape and another yes. Oh, what? They didn't know that he had taken photos of Tolly. And kept him for over 10 that. years. Well, they also oh, found another envelope labeled An Ode to New York by John Berger which had pictures of other victims. They also found a bunch of women's jewelry. July 28th, Rodney's arraigned. He pleads not guilty on all charges. Preliminary hearing is set for two weeks. On August 9th, 1979, he is held without bail. 
Rodney requests a public defender and the prosecution make it known from the jump we are seeking the death penalty for Robinson himself. August 1st, Robin's mom mm-hmm. confirms that the earrings they found in Rodney's storage unit belonged to her and it was pretty common for Robin to just go in her room and grab earrings to wear. She probably brought grabbed those because she thought they were kind of grown up and she was going to go to her first job. The prosecutor now had both Robin's murder case to deal with and Monique's rape case in September. Now things changed in Robin's case when Dana Crappa, who originally did not want to be involved and would not give a straight answer to anyone, admitted to seeing the body the same night she saw Ronnie and Robin on the side of the road, which completely ruined everything in regards to discovery. Because the people who aren't really well-versed on what happens with law stuff is that if new evidence comes out about a case, whichever side finds it, you have to tell the court and you have to give the other side ample time to investigate it. Mm-hmm. It pushes Robin's trial back. They, they change the murder trial to October 4th. They proceed with Monique Hoyt's rape case as the primary one. But when the day comes, Monique doesn't show up. The belief in this situation is that it may have been because Monique was evaluated by a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist had some negative things to say about her mental health and she didn't think they would believe her. So she just didn't show up. But um, she's a 15 year old runaway. Uh, There's possible the reason why she was running away from home could, could be linked to the mental health issues. Just saying, but regardless, I understand why a victim might feel like the justice system isn't helping them. Dina Crapp is having a hard time. She is so racked with guilt. She keeps trying to figure out, did I really see a body that night at the same location where the car was the first time? Or did I see it on the 25th and the 29th? She, at first she told the police she never saw the body before June 29th. But then like she ended up going to see a psychiatrist. Um, the constant flip-flopping with the testimony. Did she see him? Did she imagine it? The trial gets pushed again several more months into 1980. Just before the trial, there was only one major thing on the table, and it was super important to both sides. The defense said that Ronnie's pedophile past would prejudice the jury. The prosecution said that this is part of the evidence we need for a conviction, and also this is a sign. It's a pattern. Rape, 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 murder, and rape. (laughs) Now, on February 15th, the judge decides (laughs) that all prior convictions are admissible, which means that Tali Shapiro and Julie J's case could be referenced at court, but none of the cases where he was just a suspect were admissible. So it was a win, sort of. That trial, the 1980 Mm. trial, lasts for two months and ends on April 29th, 1980. The jury comes back on April 30th with their verdict, guilty of first-degree murder and forcible kidnapping of Robin Samson. May 7th, the jury condemned Rodney to death. Uh, The official sentencing was June 20th, one year after Robin disappeared. That day, Judge Philip Swab agreed with the jury's sentencing and determined that Rodney would be sent to the gas chamber in San Quentin prison. A lot of people didn't think that Tony, that Rodney was going to actually see the death penalty because California hadn't actually put a man to death since 1967. Essentially what was happening was that like the cases would get pushed off, pushed off, pushed off, pushed off. And if you hit like a 12 year mark, you usually got released. So that's what they thought was going to happen here. Oh, damn. Hmm. 
Prosecution proceeded with all the other cases against him. July 11th, 1990, he's charged with the murder, burglary, and sexual assault of Jill Parentale. They are seeking the death penalty as well. September of 1980, he's taken from San Quentin to Riverside and put on trial for Monique Coit's rape and sentenced to nine years. Things seem to be going surprisingly well for the prosecution, and they're building a case against him. And then February of 1981, Keith Monroe filed an appeal on behalf of Rodney Alcala, claiming that there had been two major mistakes during Rodney's first trial. First, he claimed that the prisoners who they brought in who testified against Rodney were lying to get lighter sentences. And the second, much more serious claim was that the prosecution had removed all of the jurors who were anti-death penalty from the jury selection pool. That second charge is actually a big deal. It's a federal offense. Um, the Supreme Court interviewed inmates uh, by the names of Dove and Herrera, who had testified against Rodney. Dove admits that he totally perjured himself. And uh, the Supreme Court says Rodney deserves a new trial. <sighs> Judge God Schwab is like, no, no, no. The case is still really strong without Dove's testimony. Strike his testimony. Screw him. They'd say them back to death row. The second trial starts in 1986. It went exactly the same as the first one, only they didn't allow any prior discussion of his pedophilia. It was based entirely on the evidence found in the locker, and he was convicted and sentenced to death again. At his well, sentencing, the judge that. read the verdict, along with the names of all of his prior victims, as proof that Rodney had not learned from his past, and he agreed with the jurors, he deserves the death penalty. The defense automatically appeals it again. <sighs> this time it takes a lot, a lot longer. The Ronnie starts doing interviews. And oh, he's putting on the reds. He's, he's showing off how smooth <laughs> and smart he is. He writes a book. I will link it in the info section on the podcast. Um, I found it through archive.org. You can run it for like a couple hours at a time. And I just keep clicking the rewrap button and read the whole thing. It's called You the Jury. <laughs> and it has the entire transcript of his second trial because the second trial doesn't include the pedophile stuff. And it has his, all of his like of notes, his trial notes and maps of the crime scene. And he's like, I'm a victim of the system. It came out in 1994. <laughs> well, after the several what? years, the Supreme Court response to the appeal on April 2nd, 2001, they reverse the second trial based on Dana Krappa's testimony because she was too afraid to actually be at the trial. They read her her testimony, and the judge said that she should have been there to testify in person. They also they also didn't yes. like Yeah, but the problem is Dana's an unreliable witness. That's why they didn't have her there. This is true. <laughs> I know, I know, but damn. That's why I said I really hope she's healed from this. But for the love of God, Dana. <laughs> um, they also didn't like that the psychologist who spoke with Dana wasn't allowed to testify about Dana's state of mind. They also wondered why Rodney's attorneys hadn't called any witnesses to support his alibi that where he said he was interviewing for a job at a, gosh, my brain has forgot the name of the, Berry, Knott's Berry Farm. 
the amusement park. <laughs> well, amusement park and farm. It is. He's fifty-seven years old. And he is on the cusp of being released. Now, in two thousand and two, California passed a law. It's not the familial DNA law. What this is is that if you get arrested and you are a felon, they can take your DNA. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense for them to do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Rodney was not okay with this. Oh, no. And he actively wrote letters to Congress and other officials saying it was unfair and unethical. Look, if you pass this law, then I'm definitely going to die. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> No, no, this isn't fair. Oh my god. <laughs> I hate him. Oh my god, I hate oh, I hate him so much. So stupid. <laughs> I told you it was gonna get ridiculous. It's so stupid. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter though. They get his DNA. In two thousand three, he's set to have a retrial. However, they get a hit. June fifth, two thousand three, he is charged with the murder of Georgia Wickstead. From that point forward. Police in every location where Rodney had visited or stayed began compiling information. And they're like, we need to get get your DNA samples from people's <laughs> families. Do what you can do, because we put it all into the system mm-hmm. now. June 27th, 2003, the Ninth Circuit of Appeals uphold the 2001 Federal District Court decision to throw out the conviction and death sentence for Robin Samso's murder. This is the second Samso trial that gets thrown out. October 7th, 2003, he pleads not guilty to murdering Robin Samso for the third time. On October 17th, he made a motion to be his own lawyer and is given a trial date in spring of 2005. 2004 comes. DNA hits keep coming. Jill Barcombe, Charlotte Lamb, Jill Parenteau. Now there are four more murders to add to the other murders. Prosecution enters a motion to add all of these four DNA hits to the new trial, giving them enough, but requesting enough time to investigate all four murders. Mm-hmm. At this point, Rob Rodney's attorney, he still had his attorneys. He had only requested to be his own, but his attorneys said, this is a direct quote, if you're a juror and you hear one murder case, you may be able to have reasonable doubt. But it's very hard to say you have reasonable doubt on all five, especially when four of the five aren't alleged by eyewitnesses, but are proven by DNA matches. In 2006, the Supreme Court sides with the prosecution. All five will go to trial at the same time, seeing as Rodney is officially a serial killer. Now, to make this simple, between 2006 and 2010, there are a big dispute, mainly over where the trial would be. Essentially, because there were so many serial killers in California, they had to make a law figuring out how to prosecute serial killer murders because serial killers had realized that you can cause a big, to make things easier for yourself if you kill in different cities and districts and states. So there was a dispute about whether this should be in Huntington Beach, whether it should be in L.A. Right, right. That wages on for years. Ultimately, in December of 2009, they begin jury selection. Rodney did win. He actually, like, fought really hard to represent himself. And he had been spent, he spent the last decade pretty much studying law every day at in jail. 
Uh, it took an entire month for the prosecution and Rodney to agree on a jury, but by January 5th, 2010, they had a jury selection of seven men and five women, with three men and two women as alternates. January 11th, 2010, trial starts. He stands accused of five murders. He's 65 years old. He wore a tan jacket, striped blue tie, and a blue shirt. He did have an appoint, a court-appointed investigator who kind of handled all the law mm-hmm. stuff that Rodney couldn't do himself. Like, he couldn't subpoena people because he wasn't allowed to leave the prison. The prosecution did a solid job. They laid out all the evidence. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot they really had to do. There was DNA proof linking him to four murders. Rodney's cross-examination of the defense was solid. He had done his homework. Like, his, he was just trying to create reasonable doubt. Well, did anybody see Jill Carl Barcom wear those earrings? Anybody see Rhea Robin Samso wear those earrings? Uh, is it possible that a handprint on a bed frame could be distorted and wrong? And since handprint, it's not really handprint technology, they look up fingerprints like a person does that. Mm-hmm. It's not like CSI. A person stares at pictures of one fingerprint, like, you know, fingerprints, and then compares it to another book. So it's not considered a hard science. So we can have reasonable doubt about fingerprints. Where this all starts to fall apart, remind you, this is 2010. It's time for the prosecution, Rodney, to call witnesses. And he calls himself. Now, when Rodney is in prison, he gets diagnosed with clinical narcissism. And one of the symptoms of clinical narcissism is an inflated sense of self-importance, a deep need for excessive attention, admiration. How long do you think this interview went where he interviewed himself? I'm going to say, wait, he interviewed himself? He interviewed himself. I'm going to say it went on for quite a while. (laughs) Five hours. Oh my God. What was he talking about? I can only imagine the court stenographer having to type Rodney Alcala, Rodney Alcala, Rodney Alcala, Rodney Alcala, just over and over again. When he was the attorney, he'd ask in a deeper voice, Mr. Alcala, and then he would respond as himself in a normal voice. He told the jurors that he was at Knott's Berry Farm applying for a job as a photographer and absolutely nowhere near Huntington Beach the day that Robin was kidnapped. Which, for the record, is nonsensical because the police have photos that he took of Robin. Um, He also showed the jury the video of him on the dating game to prove to the jury that he liked to wear earrings, too, and that those earrings they said belonged to Robin's mom were actually his. He told them he had no recollection of killing anyone. And then during his closing statements, he played the song Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie which is about a man who tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill people. Hmm. It took less than two days for him to be convicted on all five counts of murder. And then a sentencing, well, at sentencing, there was a surprise witness, Tali Shapiro, just to hammer it in a little extra harder. Rodney was sentenced to death for the third and final time. Now that that's handled, the police can focus on all these friggin' photos they found in the storage locker. In March of 2010, they released 120 that they had not been able to verify on their own yet. The other 900 photos could not be made public because they were pretty much child pornography. Mm -hmm. 21 women came forward to confirm that they were the woman in the picture and that he had done nothing illegal to them. 
Six families said that the photos were of a family member who had gone missing around the time. 2013, Christine Thornton is identified as a missing woman who was also photographed by Rodney. Her remains were found in Wyoming in 1982. Christine's relatives provided a DNA sample, and in 2015, it was confirmed that Rodney's DNA was found on her remains. He told the court he took photos of her, but nothing else. He was charged not only with her murder, but the murder of her unborn child. Uh, he was too sick to stand trial in Wyoming, but that conviction came down in 2016. Now that Rodney was 100% on death row for sure, New York was like, we might as well just drop the case against him. But then the prosecutors were like, eh, send him over anyway. <laughs> yeah, just to be a- and he got indicted for Ellen Hover's death in January of 2011. He went to New York in January 2012 to enter a not guilty plea for both Ellen and Cornelia. On January 7th, 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced him to 25 years to life. Then San Francisco announced in March of 2011 that they were confident that Rodney Alcala had killed a 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lampson who had disappeared after going to meet a man to photograph her. Her entire case matched Rodney's M.O., but there wasn't enough DNA on her remains to get a good hit. In Seattle, Washington, he was named as a person of interest in the death of 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker in July of 1977 and 17-year-old Joyce Gaunt in February 1978. Throughout his entire time in prison, this man remained poised, arrogant, and 100% sure that he could game the system. And, if I'm honest, in the end, he did. Rodney Alcala died at 1.34 a.m. July 24, 2021, at a hospital in Kings County. He managed to die on his own terms. Not a fan fiction. It is, it is weirdly impressive that he pushed off his his convictions from 1979 to 2000. I mean, yeah, okay. It is. It also shows how many crazy loopholes there are in our justice system. It's wild. But there you go. I didn't like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a satisfying end for me. <laughs> I know. I told you that, like, listen, Dana, Dana had me so upset. I was like, okay, you went back and you found the body, right? It's like, no. She told herself that she didn't see anything. Okay, so you, you went back and then you called the police. Nope. Uh, she said, I don't know where Dana is now, but good God, girl. I, like I said, I hope you've healed. This was obviously super traumatic for you to the point where you could not tell them anything useful. <laughs> I almost wish that she had never said anything at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that too. Oh my God. Oh. Well, have you heard? Have you ever heard? Okay, wait, 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 wait. wait. Let me let me me just start this off by saying you're gonna be super proud of me, okay? Why? Because I typed. (laughs) I I typed up my shit. Oh, so now you can't be like I carry my own hair. Uh, Which inevitably I see you do every week. I watch you just go. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I literally forgot the word Knott's Berry Farm oh, a couple minutes ago. So <clears throat> that's what it is. 
But yeah, I typed up my stuff and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I feel so professional now. Yay! <laughs> oh, goodness. But anyway, um, so have you ever heard the saying um, that everybody has someone in the world that looks like them? Oh, yeah. Like, Doppelganger twins. Yeah, I'm here for like it. me, for instance, I've I've been compared to like a, a lot of skinny uh, black celebrities. Like, uh, really? <laughs> I want to know who people thought. So you. I'll tell you one that happened to me that was absolutely stupid. Okay. If you tell me what okay. it was. Um, uh, who was it? It's, I, okay, so I got Chris Rock. I got. Oh, <laughs> I got um, Farnsworth from like Farnsworth family. Yeah, yeah. You don't even dress like that. They said I look like him. Um, who else was Andre three thousand? Yes. Um, so like him. I I guess with the beard. Um, the beard. Y'all do have similar facial yeah. hair, but that's about it. Uh, okay. You you ready for one that sounds ridiculous? Yeah. Because you've seen mm-hmm. me. So I was at Hershey Park as a kid, and I was always a pretty tall kid. Um, and I had my hair in just straight braids, straight backs. And so not the cute ones with the little stuff on the end, because I was probably in high school, so I was definitely not going to have mm. beads on my head. <laughs> that was for children. Um, but regardless, these people were sitting behind us. It was one of those pirate rides where you sit down, and it was me and my best friend, and we were like, up, it goes back and forth. Oh, the swing thing, yeah. Yeah, we get off the ride, we start walking. And these people keep calling. Like they keep making loud noises. And I turn around, and the person's like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I thought you were Queen Latifah. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it is the stupidest thing I have ever had anyone come up to me and say. Ever. Wow! <laughs> all because I was like, so you thought I was Queen Latifah from the movie Set It Off? Because that's the only time she's had that hairstyle. Or when she was doing U and I T Y, that's when she used to wear braids. Yeah. But ever since she's become a multi megastar and like platinum selling musician, she doesn't wear like cornrows anymore. Oh my god! You think I look like nineteen eighties? Okay, Latifah. Queen Latifah definitely <laughs> headed to Hershey Park that day. She's on the pirate ride. That's what happened. It was so stupid, and you know who it was. it's always. Listen, it's yeah, always I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's always yeah, yeah. It's always <laughs> those people that say look like these people. So you know. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I also get like every every plus size big girl. We all look the same. Right, right, right. That's a weird thing. But um. But anyway, are we talking about the the German? Yes. Situation? Yeah. So nice. So like, there's never been some type of like lost long long lost lost twin thing showing up. <laughs> but no, no. Like I mean, the old the old time people were afraid of mirrors. Yeah. They were afraid of anything that looked like you, exactly like you. So there's whole lots of lore around the world mm-hmm. about it. But yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about doppelgangers today. Um, this is, well, basically is a person that's not related to you in any way, but they, they have your face. And Wait, I thought doppelgangers were ghosts. Ghosts? 
<laughs> I thought in the original draft. Well, we're, we'll 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 touch it. We're touch on that. We'll we'll get to that. But um, like I don't know. In, in like the, the I guess the physical sense that a doppelganger would be someone that looks like you, and like it's actually like someone. Because I mean, if there's a corporeal person who looks like me, I'm. <laughs> And hope it's not me from the past, because dang, now we're dead. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole world's dead. Thanks a lot, Brittany. Coming to the damn past. <laughs> or coming to the future. I don't fucking know. Whatever. <laughs> so, you know, so the actual definition of a doppelganger is that it's a, a devil or an alter ego. Um which is like the alter ego thing is very interesting to me because, you know, when you think of someone who has like an alter ego, you think of someone like a different side of them, um, like that's in their head, not something that might be like a physical form of them. You know what I mean? Um, but like another definition of a doppelganger, and I love this, is that it's like you said, it's a ghostly counterpart of someone. <clears throat> And in fact, well, you you know this, but uh, the audience, did you know this? <laughs> that doppelganger is a, a German word, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and it roughly translates to like double walker or like double goer. And and in German folklore, a doppelganger is is a race or a spirit that looks like um, the said person. And it's like, you know, the person, like, if it looks like you, basically. Um, like, everyone has one of these. Like, people, animals, aliens. And, mm-hmm. yeah, they have their own little shadows. Like, not a shadow. I wouldn't say a shadow spirit, but, like, a, a spirit that looks just, just like you. Um, and if one were to meet their double, um, it would be a sign that that person's death would be like right around the corner um like it's an impending death would happen to this person um there's actually stories about this um that were written there's a book about this let me see if i can find it it's called oh it's 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 funny (laughs) i couldn't find it at first it's called a double okay and it was written okay. in 18, uh, 1846. And it basically, there's a doppelganger in, in this book, of course. And they have, their, their, uh, I guess, the personality. They have a different personality than the person in the book. Um, and they they kind of like, I guess, they kind of like manipulate this person. They, they put words in their ear. And they try to take they they try to get them to like kind of like off themselves, but then they're like, "Well, I'm gonna if you're not gonna do it, then I'm gonna do it, <laughs> and I'll take your place." And it, okay. yeah, it's just it's sometimes like doppelgangers at a at a time where it's thought to be like. uh I guess, like, evil spirits or evil. It's just evil. Yeah, when I was a kid, it was if you saw one, it meant you were going to die. Yeah. 
Um, so have you ever, like, have you ever had someone come up to you, like someone you know, like someone you used to work with or someone, um, one of your friends or your family, and they're like, Brittany, I swear I saw you today, like walking down the street. And I like I, I yeah I've heard stuff like yeah that. and then, like I said hi and yeah. you did not say like you did not say anything back to me and it's fucking weird so yeah there's there's a thing is that if a family member or a friend of yours sees your doppelganger then that per- that person would probably like get sick like real soon or. Or oh. something bad would happen to them. <clears throat> yeah, so like they'd be, I don't know. Like I say, hey Brittany, I saw you the other day, but you weren't saying shit to me. <laughs> like you ignored me. I was like, hey Brittany, and you did not turn around at all. And then like I don't know, a couple of days later, I like I get sick or I catch a plague or like a piano falls on me or some shit like that. Should have kept. <laughs> <laughs> See, you should have told. Should have been trying to tell me about some doppelganger. I don't care. Let that she's trying to live your That's life. So professional. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's trying to live my life. Listen, she's probably living my life better than me. Oh my god. You know that's part that that was in that book as well. Like that. Like the doppelganger was like living the person's life better than they were. <clears throat> and or they were like they were doing things that this person they did that they wanted to do, but the doppelganger was actually out doing it stuff, and it was just like, damn, what, like what? What if I had a doppelganger that's just out doing this shit that I want to do? And I'm not, I'm too fucking lazy to do it. And he's like, fuck you, I'm doing it. I'm like this is a good idea. Why aren't you doing it? <clears throat> it's just me talking shit about myself, but whatever. Um, so. Th- Doppelgangers, they appear in a lot of mythology, of course. Um, not just German mythology or German folklore. They, uh, it, they appear in Norse mythology. <clears throat> and I figured it would be one of the ones. <laughs> and <clears throat> they, they're not really named doppelgangers, but they're named uh, Vardoga. And they're they're basically uh, ghosts, like like the obviously the same thing as doppelgangers are, I guess, in, in the German sense. Um, they are ghosts that precede their living counterparts, and what that means is that say say. You're going out somewhere, right? You're going out with a bunch of with a group of friends, and you're running late. You know, you call your friend, you're like you're running late, blah 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 blah, and like you text your friends, like, "Hey, I'm running late today," you know, and then, and then they text you back, and I'm like, "What are you talking about? You just went up to get some snacks at the you know the counter, like we just saw you mm-hmm. here," and, and then you're just like, "What?" <laughs> So you get you get there, it's just like this thing just leaves and then you appear. You're like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Like, Brittany, where are your stacks at? You know what I mean? It's like something something that looked just like you was there before you got there. Interacting, doing the things that you were about to do. Mm-hmm. But 
It wasn't you. It was just a ghost. So, I guess this a, a Vardoger would like it be you from the future. I don't know a, a ghost of you from the future. So it'd be like an. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> she cannot appear to me because if we are corporeal and you listen, one of us has to die right now. <laughs> These are the rules of science fiction. We're not supposed to be in the same place. This is violating all of the rules of time time travel. travel. (laughs) Uh. So now one of us has to die, and I don't. I hope they don't need me in the future because I have things to do right now here in the present. And listen, the funny part, if you kill your double in the future, you'll eventually get to the future. We're not doing paradoxes today. No paradoxes. No no time. Listen, then don't show up, (laughs) ghost girl. No time paradoxes. They hurt my head. Uh, Time paradoxes are the worst. Yeah. Um, Also, in ancient Egyptian mythology, uh, there's a thing. It's called a ka. And, Mm And this was... Basically the same thing. It's a tangible spirit double of you. And, you know, they have, like, the same memories, the same feelings uh, as you. But, you know, like, they're just a ghostly form of you. And then, um, so they could be, like, a part of you, I guess. And then just come and go as they please and to cause some confusion in your life. Um, so that's a thing. And I mean, the reason why I would want a double is you go to work <laughs> for me, make money, but so I can play video games. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of an episode of Regular Show. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. where if anybody's seen Regular Show, it's it's about uh, it's a cartoon about uh, animals that work in a park and and not just animals they're just things and objects and whatever anyway so there's this character his name's rigby he's a raccoon right he's very lazy um so he's like you know what i'm gonna hire somebody to be to work for so you know to do my job and so i could just eat food all day and play video games so he hires this person his name's doug and doug starts to assume rigby's identity so he starts turning into rigby he starts becoming rigby he turns he like he literally his body transforms into so he's like his doppelganger and he's like he's uh at the like at the end like towards the end of the episode uh doug is like i'm taking over your life this is my life now you had the good life now it's my turn to have the good life so (laughs) that's what it reminds me of it reminds me of like If you want it, if you want to have a double, fine, go ahead. But sooner or later, they're going to want to take your fucking life <laughs> one way or another. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> no. Listen, she know what we've been through. <laughs> sure, you take on the uh, generalized anxiety and major depressive disorder and ADHD and eating disorder. Let's go. Have fun. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Listen, 
One of my favorite statements that I saw on Twitter was, being alive is the worst. I didn't even want to be here, and I'm not even having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that way all lives. I mean, like, dang, we didn't get a choice or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just thrown into this damn thing called life. You just got to deal mm-hmm. with it. What would you do? If I had a double? I, I don't know. Another Brian walks in. Ooh, how about this? Mm-mm. You come home from work and Cassandra's playing in the living room with daddy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> Bye. You just going to pass him by and let Brian too help with the, like, just watch the baby. And like, Hey, Hey, you got this, right? I got, I got, I got to get some sleep before work. You got this, right? You're like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you just came from work. Like, I gotta record the podcast this afternoon. You gonna take her to school? You're good to go, right? All right, cool. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would. You know what? I would, I would. I'd be a little concerned, but I'd be like, oh, you know what? Fuck it. You, you're here now. Just you babysit, at least. I think the most terrifying thing would be if I was laying in bed. And I turned over. And there was another thing. <laughs> There's a story about that. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. I read a story about that. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's really fucking creepy. Uh, it just, um, I've been watching, so spoilers, but this show came out years ago. So uh, I've been watching the, um, what's it called? Something Zero from Sci-Fi. Oh, Channel, Channel Zero. Yeah. Season four with the black couple. Mm-hmm. It's about the door in the people's basement that went down into another door. I think I remember that and, one, yeah. <clears throat> well, it was it was a, a, a creature that was a creation of the daughter, and it was her emotional manifestation of anger. And I'm like, yo, what if your doppelgangers are your feelings? <laughs> I mean, ugh. Ugh. Exactly. No, thank you. No, thank you. I don't want that at all. I'd sit there for a second and think about it. No, I wouldn't like that at all. This is sadness. <clears throat> so there, there, there's uh, like different forms of doppelgangers, right? Like, like I said, you got the spirits mm-hmm. and you got your 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 physical ones too. <clears throat> I read something that a changeling. You remember from the changeling episode I did. Oh, yeah. That's that could be a form of a doppelganger as well because they come in and they but, take they take over somebody's life. They take over, you know. There's loads of stories about that, like like TV shows and movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Person takes your life, and then you know, one's like, oh wow. John said so much nicer. <laughs> uh, oh goodness gracious! <clears throat> so there's this picture. I was, I was, you know, doing research and stuff. I found this picture, and it's called "How They Met Themselves," Ooh. and it's it's uh, dated from 
it's 1860s to 1864. Post, post me that picture. I got you. I got you. Um, I think I got you. Hold on. Come on, fucking. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so it's base. It's it's a it's a picture of a medieval couple, um, and they basically just like run into themselves in the middle of the woods, and. Like they run into themselves, like literally, they run into their doubles, and the guy is like, he he pulls out a sword. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to whisper. (laughs) That is exactly what that uh, song calls for. You pull out a sword and start fighting Shia LaBeouf in the woods. Only it's you. Oh my god, actual (laughs) cannibal. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. God. <clears throat> I'm gonna go watch that one more time. <laughs> Just so. But yeah, he, he pulls out his sword like he's about to fight his self off and then his his lover, she faints and <clears throat> they're just like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but yeah, that's that's what the picture is of. I suppose I posted it in, in Oh, it's like a painting. Yeah, yeah. So, is there? I feel like we should make a a, a like a thing in the Discord, mm-hmm. and then post the pictures that we talk about in the podcast, so people can see what we're talking oh, about. That's not a bad idea. We can do that. <clears throat> so, there are real life tales of doppelgangers, and I have some that I'd like to read to you. Okay. All right, and most of them are obviously from Reddit because Reddit has all the creepy stuff on there. So, <clears throat> and these are not from our sleep. No, right? no, 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 not at all. Because no sleep is actual people who yeah. want money for their stories. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> nothing like that. Okay, just making sure. Don't want to get in trouble. No, I don't want to get in trouble either. No, hell no, I don't want to get sued. Um. You know, it's hard getting people to, re- by, by the way, it's hard to get people to reply back to you on, on our no sleep when you want to read their stories. Like, I've done. Um, I would probably follow the link and do professional emails. Mm-hmm. But, um. But, I mean, if any of them, I mean, the third season of apparently Channel Zero is my, is a based off of apparently my favorite our no sleep. But it has nothing to do with it other than the fact that occasionally there are stairwells in the woods. The actual writer of the whole Stairwells No Sleep, that is an incredible, like, 30,000 word oh, yeah. novella. Oh, yeah, no. It, the, the, the Channel Zero took virtually barely nothing from the source material. Except for the damn name. It would have been so much, yeah, it would have been so much more interesting if this was from people who did Search and Rescue. That was the thing that made it compelling. Uh, Sorry. Um, No, that's awesome. I love the Search and Rescue I stopped watching that. I stopped stopped watching the third season of Channel Zero because it was just weird. And I was like, what does this have to do like the first one, Candle Cove, is about Candle Cove. It's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's the one that's, that's, like for Channel Zero, that's the one that's actually closely based on 
Oh, uh, the creepy pasta. The second one, the haunted house was. Really uh, good. no end house. Yeah, that one is actually another one that's based on. Yeah, it's it's actually really. They're all based off of creepy pastas. They actually like it says in the, like the the credits of the episodes mm-hmm. based off of this story by this person. They actually put the name of the author that they got the inspiration. Yeah. From. It's just knowing that it was based off of a creepypasta. I really wish it would have been I, yeah. more. One day, they'll actually do like live-action ad- adaptations of these creepypastas. That... Right. All we have are like people doing weird animations of them. Yeah. Now or Slenderman <laughs> shorts too. or uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Which is really awesome, though. I like watching them. Not going to lie, because I, you know, like, I love the analog horror stuff. <laughs> All right, so... It's good stuff. It's good stuff. But let's hear about people's experiences meeting their own. Okay. So I'd say there most of these, like some of these are aren't of them meeting their themselves, but um they're like of them seeing another person, like another family member, you know what I mean? Like a second dad or a second like another brother or sister or something like that. Um so here here's one. Here's one. Um when I was about 16 or 17, I was really heavy into doing the Ouija board. Oh, <laughs> Other stuff happened, but the dot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, some demon crap happened, but we're not here to talk no, about we're, that we're right now. We're talking about topic gigas today. We're not talking about the other stuff that happened. <clears throat> Other stuff happened, but the doppelgangers were definitely the worst. The first one was my mom. I heard I heard her come in, and my best friend was with me. My friend and I walked down to greet her. She looked like a younger version of my mom and was carrying groceries. So I tried calling out to her, but she didn't respond and walked into my brother's room. Then I got a sick feeling. I called out to her, but she didn't respond still. So I followed her up. She was not there. When I walked back down, my real mom had come in and didn't know what was going on. She was also wearing a different outfit. <clears throat> okay, I have a question mm-hmm. now. So this comes up a lot. I mean, I watch a lot of ghost shows. I've been watching an entire series of shows lately now uh, because I have Discovery+. Mm-hmm. Plus. And it's pretty common, like, from what I understand from what mediums say, ghosts present themselves not as the way that they were, as the way they want you to see. Oh yes, absolutely. So couldn't some of so in, in some of these situations, couldn't they also just be a ghost mimicking a human because they just want to? I want to say be mischievous. <laughs> I mean, probably it has some nefarious. Reasons. I mean, if they, if they uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd say if they want to like mimic a, an actual like human that's actually that's living right now, I'd say it's probably mischievous. Yeah. Bare minimum, it's we're playing a horrible prank on you. <laughs> that too. The worst is, of course, we're trying to convince you to do something horrible. Yeah. But um, I just that comes up a lot. Like people are like, "Oh, you know, I was over here cleaning the sanatorium in this building, and like six people said they saw me over a acre away, mm. and I was mean to them." <laughs> and like, like so that comes up, and I'm just like. I don't really understand what the spirit in that situation is doing, but like it, it comes up in a lot of a lot of stuff. Hmm. 
But anyway, what happened after he saw his real Okay, mom? so that was it. That was it. That was the end of that one. Uh, he just freaked yeah. out. Um, um, there's another one. <clears throat> the next one was my brother. So my mom was talking to him on the phone, and he said he was on his way home. As soon as he hung up, my brother walked in the door. He talked to us for a little. Mom wanted him to take out the garbage or something and then walked to the bathroom. He had been in the bathroom for like 15 minutes. And then I got the sick feeling again. Asked, I asked him if he, you know, he had fallen in the, you know, the toilet or something. Ha ha, funny. <laughs> um, then my real brother walked in and was freaked out. So I guess after her mom hang, hung up with her brother, he walked in. And then that wasn't him. That was the doppelganger that had walked in. And then he went to the bathroom. The doppelganger went to the bathroom. And then her real brother walked in. And everybody got freaked out because, like, where the fuck did you come from? You were in the bathroom. <sighs> but, yeah. Um, it's It says at the end, both times they had darker eyes. And it felt sort of like a dream. But it was definitely awake. And other people witnessed it. So it's kind of like moving into the black-eyed children territory. Mm. <clears throat> That's a throwback, yeah. like third or fourth episode. Uh, <clears throat> another one. Um, when I was nine, I stayed home sick. Quotations. Uh, I'm not quoting. <laughs> oh, I think I, I think I read this one. Okay, I stayed home sick from school. I distinctly remember that I wasn't actually sick, simply playing hooky to avoid bullying. Uh, Kids are cruel, of course. As I did that a lot around that age. I awoke from a nap and turned on the TV in the living room and scrolled through some channels when my mother suddenly leaned over the bar and stared at me without saying a thing. Um, I had been awake for a few minutes at this point. So I couldn't, I can't rightly blame sleep paralysis or like for all of this. Now, whatever this thing was, it was entirely identical to my actual mother. It sounds weird to describe, but it's as if the only difference was that this thing pretending to me, my mom, had never felt a single emotion in his life. It was unsettling. Um, it beckoned me. And I attempted to talk to her as I would my mother. She kept beckoning me, refused to answer, and that's when I sensed something horribly wrong. Naturally, I started screaming at this thing to answer me, and it just kept beckoning. I bolted running out of my room, out of of the room, and into the yard, yelling for help. My mother, the real one, had been working in the yard and came rushing over. I told her what I had just seen, and she soothed me with easy explanations that it must have just been a fever dream. But thankfully, stayed by my side the rest of the afternoon as I was a nervous wreck. So yeah, that's another... I guess that, that would be like a case of like a ghostly thing, like trying to do something to you yeah trying to get you to do it at once yeah. um spooky. spooky absolutely 
this is this is a good one. <clears throat> when I was in middle school, I was at a friend's apartment. Uh, she lived in with her mom. Her mom was cool and let us party there. And she was always at work, you know, long, late hours. Uh, there was a group of us there, maybe six people or so. Everyone was in the living room except for this couple who were in the mom's bedroom with the door closed and the lights off. I wonder what they're doing in there. <clears throat> we had all gotten pretty baked. I had just made myself a snack and was walking to my friend's bedroom, which was right past the mom's room where the couple was. As I walked past the mom's bedroom door, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the door opening from the inside and a partial face head that looked identical to my friend's mom, who was not home at the time. Um, I didn't think anything of it since there were so many people in the small apartment and kept walking past, just kept walking and sat in my friend's room. A minute later, the girl who had been screwing around in the in that bedroom, you know, with the guy with the lights off and everything, um, it, she came out of that bedroom and yelled at me and asked me why I had kicked the door open. And I told her I saw someone come out of there <laughs> and she was adamant that I had walked by and kicked the door open. Uh, the, the more I thought about it, the weirder it was. Like I thought she was messing with me at first, but the person I saw didn't look like anyone that was there at the time. It looked so much like the mom. If it were her, it would have meant that she had somehow somehow snuck back into the apartment after being gone for hours, hidden in her room in the dark for over an hour. <laughs> and waited until some kids showed up to have sex and then like, ah, yeah. gotcha. <laughs> While this couple was messing around in her bed, um, and then she would have like discreetly left the bedroom door, the, the bedroom, and then passed the living room full of people to get out to the front door i don't i don't get it um but yeah that's a that's a thing that happened <sighs> oh goodness gracious creep oh my god this is sometimes these things give me chills um where's i got another one i had i just looked these up <laughs> i'm just like reading them all the website <laughs> um There. Okay, so here, here's what I got from uh, the, the wiki, wiki wick. <clears throat> no, I don't want to read that one. No, no, fuck it. Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope. Well, I'm sure there's lots. No, yeah, no. That we can send. Yeah, no. There, there are, there are a ton. Um, I got this off of a website that I, I frequent a lot. It's called Graveyard Shift. Um, yeah, they, they, they email me a lot of stuff. And <laughs> they email me a lot of weird stuff. So uh, if you guys want to listen or read some more um, creepy, creep-tastic um, doppelganger stories, I, I myself have not had an encounter with someone who looks like me. A lot of people... You know, you know what? Just last night, it's funny. Just last night at practice, um, one of the new people they were they were asking me about 
um, hey, did you used to work at like Robberitos or something like that? And I'm like, what? Uh, no. <laughs> like, I wish I worked at Robberitos. They have delicious burritos there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> someone who looks like you and some, uh, works at the burrito store. Someone who had the same, well, who had my same derby name. And I was like, what? I was what? like, what? Okay, that's weird. I know, right? <laughs> I'm like that's 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 weird. Like I, I like I'm like the only person who has this name that I know of. <laughs> but yeah. Um doppelgangers. Watch out for them. Um they could be right around the corner or right right behind you. Or trying to take over your job by playing as you, like if someone wants to take over my job like go right ahead like you could go do that i'll go do something else like <laughs> i don't i don't i will not fight for the, the job if you want to work it buddy <laughs> go right ahead <clears throat> well yes thank you for listening our our diehards listen till the very end i uh, was that like a maggie <laughs> <laughs> she'll enjoy this episode it's it's also another long go. episode For so people yes. who like it long uh i didn't mean to say it that way uh, <laughs> 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 i love your episodes thank you so much for listening and you have yourself a really good weekend <laughs> you have a good weekend